Okay, we are live. Let me just wait for Rockfin to give me the green light. And then we will get started. All right. We have with us once again, the great, the absolutely great Robert Barnes. Robert, how are you doing? Where can people find you? Uh, good, good. Uh, everybody can find any of this, the uh, content that we put up, including a, a, I'll probably pin the hush-hush that I did last year around this time on where the Ukrainian conflict might be going. People can evaluate it for themselves as to how uh, accurate it was or wasn't. Uh, at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. We have that link in the description box down below. We will pin everything as well as uh, as a pinned comment. We'll put all the links as a pinned comment. We have Alexander McCurse, the Oracle of London, also joining us. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, on Odyssey, Rumble. Smash that like if you're watching us on Rumble on YouTube as well, and of course, thedoran.locals.com. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Locals. VJ Cap says, did you see the Viva stream with Constantine Kissin? Oh, my. So I, was, uh, uh, I, I did not. Was, so. It was earlier, wasn't it? I think yeah, it was, it, 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 yeah, it was earlier, so I haven't had the chance to. Uh, I'm still, I'm on mm -hmm. Vegas time, so I don't get up early when, Vegas, mm -hmm. when you know, Viva's doing his uh, 7 a.m., 6 a.m., you know, Viva's an early morning guy uh, uh, kind of thing. So the I haven't seen it. You know, I mean, he's a I think he was born in Russia or at least Russian by ancestry, but tends to be an anti-Putin guy, tends to be a, a pro-Ukraine war guy. The though he's had some nuance to his his opinions. Um, mostly he's in the cultural space is where a lot of his interest is attracted. But he's reflective and representative of uh, uh, a good topic, which is, you know, why is someone like uh, Jordan Peterson, great psychologist, Camille Paglia has, you know, on the left has said he's one of the great minds of our modern age. Mm -hmm. A lot of good practical mm -hmm. philosophical advice to people on issues mm -hmm. of marriage, relationships, uh, as the parody goes, you know, you better clean your room, all that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, 12, you know, lessons for life. But uh, he's been... Whenever he stepped out of that space, he's been mm. uh, often AWOL. But the most recent version of that is him uh, recommending welcoming regime change in Iran. And God mm. bless Jordan Peterson, but why do I care about his opinion on Iran anyway? Mm. Um, mm. This is someone who got the vaccines wrong early. He said, you know, just shut up and take it. This is someone who, but to give an example, it's how does a very well-intended very, uh, in my opinion, a very intelligent uh, individual mm. gets such issues so wrong on matters of foreign mm. policy. And mm. part of that is the simple uh, explanation that most people uh, judge their uh, a politician or public figure policy by their lived experience. Otherwise, mm. they rely upon the institutional narrative. My example mm. to friends of mine that are conservative here in America that are obsessively anti-Putin is I'm like, where did you get those ideas from? And to give you an illustration, mm -hmm. when I'm talking to them, I say, look at Europe. Europe thinks Donald Trump was the greatest threat to the Western world for war and thinks Joe Biden is a wonderful president, according to their own polls. Yeah. Why? Because they rely upon the European media for their interpretation mm -hmm. of a person they don't know and for events they, they haven't fully absorbed. Mm -hmm. The same is true in the U.S. 
like the irony is I, occasionally I'll, I'll ask a conservative, like, what would be your ideal government? Would it be something with a balanced budget? Would it be something with like a more of a flatter tax system that's not mm -hmm. too, you know, doesn't take a lot, that isn't too progressive, so to speak? Would it be a, mm -hmm. a place that celebrates patriotism and nationalism mm -hmm. and pride in your history and heritage? Would it be a place that is more conservative on cultural issues, that doesn't like wokeism? In fact, it's so much so that doesn't really even like issues of gender identity and gender fluidity. And those constructs is, you know, one of the most conservative countries in the world. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that, that that's my ideal kind of leader. That's my ideal kind of country. And I'm like, well, you know, probably the number one example of that in the entire world is Russia under Vladimir Putin, who you claim to hate and despise because they don't even know it. So it's an example of like, uh, which we'll get into in a bit, the, the, the broader like Crowder Daily Wire kind of debate, mm -hmm. which is the old debate of when do you sacrifice principles to obtain power? And in the process of doing so, do you forfeit any gain that you could use from that power anyway? Um, is look at Peterson, what Peter, who, what sources is he trusting? Well, when he started to get into the Ukrainian conflict, he, this was by the time he did so, he was starting to get affiliated and associated with the Daily Wires of the world. In his first reaction, or what he thought was, I need a good expert on Ukraine. Who would be a really good expert on Ukraine? Oh, somebody with the last name Kagan. So that's who he interviewed. Interviewed a Kagan as if, Kagan, these are independent experts on matters of Ukraine. It's like these are a couple of the biggest war whores. The entire family, Victoria Nuland's mm -hmm. married into them, God bless her, the, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the world. And yet Peterson mm -hmm. didn't even know this. And he just accepted mm. it at face value. Now, he's since mm. moderated some of his positions on Ukraine, but now he's back doing the same thing. Why? Because he's mm. got, to, in my view, he's got to, he trusts the wrong sources. And part of that is facilitated because he has a contract with the Daily Wire. And while not everyone at the Daily Wire is on the neocon side, their leading person, Ben Shapiro, is one of the biggest neocons in the world. I don't know if there's a war he hasn't whored for at one time or another. Uh, he's not only very deeply pro-Israel, almost reflexively so, but he's very anti-Iran. He wants Iranian regime change. And is it really a coincidence that he's leveraging Jordan Peterson's credibility in a totally different space to convince people who just see Peterson as a brilliant mind to support his, his goal and his objective of trying to create regime change or conflict in Iran. And I've been telling people that I think, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think there's more risk of war with Iran than there is with China. I don't think war with China, is, if you listen to McGregor and others, is something that anybody in the Pentagon really thinks is a winnable war. Uh, whereas they still convince themselves that you know one more Middle Eastern war is just the one we need to get over the top for the neocon dream, especially if Ukraine falls apart. They need, okay, Afghanistan fell apart. Now Ukraine falls apart. Well, we got to have a new justification for the, the war military-industrial complex. We needed more validation for our neoconservative views of the world. Netanyahu's back in power in Israel and has always been wanting to, let's, let's go bomb Iran, bomb, 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 bomb Iran, the old McCain meme. Um, and I think that's partially what's happening is that Peterson – in my view, should just stay out of this space. It's not a space he has any history of being any good at. I think he jeopardizes his credibility and his uh, authenticity and his reliability uh, when on, on issues he does know a lot about, psychology and broader issues of religion and culture, uh, marriage and personal development. 
when he goes into these uh, waters, he clearly doesn't understand and is simply pitching military industrial complex propaganda, uh, the neocon uh, um, uh, mantra. Uh, so I think it shows two things. It's a concern about where we're going. The fact that they're leveraging Peterson to try to start talking about Iran uh, is means that they're lever they're starting to level up and wanting to get into a military conflict with Iran, uh, particularly as Ukraine falls apart or is probably right on the cusp uh, of, of falling apart. And it also shows the problem of gatekeeper Operation Mockingbird style media. Um, you know, the that when you have these big institutional media structures that are really about limiting the Overton window, uh, preventing certain topics from ever being discussed. You can have intense debate about trans rights, but just make sure your audience is on board on the deep state priorities, whether it's Ukraine conflict, whether it's Iranian war, whether it's trying to escalate in needless ways against China. And it's, you know, the, uh, and it's reflective thereof. Uh, well, thank you for that, uh, Robert, because I must say, say, I did not know that Jordan Peterson had taken this view on Iran. And I do find that extraordinary, given, as I said, that given what you've been saying, I mean, you know, this is a sensible, rational person. And at the same time, someone who has been so relentlessly criticized by the media, you'd have thought they'd be the last people that he would simply take their word for on a topic like this. But I've actually experienced this directly myself, and it's always bewildered me. Now, there's a friend of ours, a friend especially of my wife's. I'm not going to embarrass by him by naming him, but he's a well-known actor, very famous actor in Britain, well-known also in the United States. Now, he takes a very rigidly pro-Ukrainian position, or at least he has done. And my wife asked him, where do you get all your ideas about Ukraine and about the war from? And he mentioned one very well-known British newspaper. Now, what that made that, what was very strange about that was that same newspaper and some of the same journalists in, the, in that newspaper were people who this actor had sued because they told lies about him. S sued successfully, I should say. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 it boggles the imagination why he believes them. Now, it, my wife did point this out and he did take a step back and, you know, he did see something of the, so, you know, the, the uh, you know, the contradiction there. By ju but judging by what he writes on Twitter, I don't think it's changed his mind at all. He still doesn't seem to see that he's taking more fruit from the same poisoned tree the poisoned tree that tried to poison him. And I've seen this again and again and again. People won't believe the media on things that they think they know about, but they believe the media about everything else. And I've never understood this. It just doesn't make any kind of sense to me. And I have to say, Jordan Peterson, all right, this act is an actor. I mean, he's not a fundamentally political person. But Jordan Peterson, I, well, I, maybe he's not a political person, but he's one of those people who operates, if you like, on the margin of politics. I mean, he's he interplays with politics. You would have thought that he would have the sophistication and the ability to see beyond things, given how much 
he experiences and what he's gone through. And yet not at all. And I don't understand that. And, you know, the fact that he works with, you know, the Daily Wire and all of that. Well, again, you would have said that Peterson, of all people, he's gone so much against orthodoxies up to this point. He's been prepared to, you know, act with great courage, great moral courage, whether you agree with him or whether you don't. He's shown a willingness and an ability to go against the mainstream on so many things, even to his own obvious material disadvantage. You wouldn't have thought that a person like that would be swayed along or by, you know, a connection to a news outlet. And yet, there we go. As I said, I've seen this all the time. It bewilders me. It baffles me. But there it is. Exactly. And I think it, it well, I mean, Michael Crichton brilliantly termed it Geller man amnesia, that that someone will be sitting there reading a newspaper and about a topic they have personal familiarity, they'll realize this newspaper is full of crap. And then they'll read the very next article and that will be their sole basis for interpreting the truth of that. Well, oh, they, they said this, it must be true. And, and he, I mean, he always found it fascinating that that discrepancy that you described. And I think it also reflects a broader debate that the conservative comedian Steven Crowder just kind of stumbled into. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, I don't follow for geopolitical analysis, except for the points that if I see him making fun of Zelensky, then I know, okay, something's happening in the broader culture that criticism is starting to get out, uh, which he started to do uh, towards the end of last year. And as someone that was at the blaze, people don't know, he just sort of, he has a very popular uh, YouTube channel, 6 million or so subscribers, so forth. Had half a million people watching live during the elections on Rumble, um, but mostly a, a culture commentator. You know, he used to be an actor, and then he he, he does co you know skits, comedy routines. But he's mostly talking about wokeism. He's talking about issues of uh, of of those related identity politics, issues of the Second Amendment, etc. Occasionally broaches into economics and politics, uh, but isn't really like a like his geopolitics tends to be just conventional, the same sort of watered down Fox News, R Rupert Murdoch version of the world. Um, but he stumbled into this because he tried to do a contract for the Daily Wire and the contract to a surprise had a cancel culture clause in it. And it's something that we've all dealt with at different levels, but it's the degree to which big tech, big media working together to shape the Overton window. So that you can debate certain things, but not other things. You can broach certain topics, but not other topics. And it reflected a broader debate that many of the, those defending the Daily Wire's contract. And the Daily Wire does a lot of work that a lot of conservatives like in the cultural space. Most of their audience is religious-based, religious conservatives. Um, but some of us have been very critical that they tend to be a leading spokesperson for neocon ideas. They tend to be uh, for, for more war for, and on topics like election issues on topics like the vaccine at the time on topics of, of the masks at the time, other things like that. They often were on, were on the wrong side from a populist perspective. And the, the, the contract provision confirms things that we've been witnessing with personalities like Jordan Peterson that as people get affiliated and associated with a daily wire, there are certain topics they no longer talk about. And uh, for the most part, there's some exceptions, but also uh, there are certain subjects they don't broadly publicize with any consistency. And they often advance a neocon agenda, especially on foreign policy. Um, they have been, um, for those that don't know, the Daily Wire was founded as an anti-Trump, never Trump organization by a couple of billionaires in Texas. 
uh, a, a, a coming out of the fracking industry. And anybody familiar with American foreign policy or domestic political assassinations uh, and other forms of corruption know that you put American with oil and American oil men, and you tend to get trouble more often than not. The, the, these folks, the HL hunts of the world, think they should run the world. Um, and they tend to have very distinct views. These particular brothers are part of a uh, kind of a cultish religious sect, almost sectarian religious belief. It's uh, a very small group. One of them is a pastor of his own thing, owns land everywhere. And these billionaire investors, you can assume that a lot of these people invest in media not to make money, but to control the narrative. They want only certain things discussed. They're often allied with corporate advertisers and, uh, and, and big tech, along with their deep state, which the Twitter files has been re revealing how much the deep state has been running big tech censorship and is behind the scenes on pretty much all of this, pulling the strings, to make sure that you only talk about certain things. And you need them to talk about things that are popular with the conservative base or they're useless, right? It, you can't be an effective gatekeeper unless a lot of people are attracted to you in the first place. So you need to attract them with the permissible areas of debate so that you detour them towards a deep state agenda in the end. And I think that what the Daily Crowder, the Daily Wire uh, Crowder debate revealed, though Crowder, I don't think fully understood this at all was he was complaining about a cancel culture clause in a contract enforcing big tech's rules through private media contracts. But what he was stumbling into was one of the ways the institutional narrative gatekeeps uh, and controls what people think and see and understand and hear. And the, the excuse is that this is done in the name of influence at the expense of independence, that this is power, sacrificing principle for power, which reflects a broader debate. But I think, and I, I wanted you guys' ideas on this, my view is uh, almost anybody who sacrifices principles for power ends up attaining power that serves no principled use. And in the hmm. process, and throughout almost all of human history, look at who's really changed the world. Has it been the people who sacrificed independence for influence? No. It's people who understood the only way you gain real influence is by being independent. But what do you guys think? Absolutely. I mean, what what's the point of the media then? It, what's the point of going out and doing commentary if you're simply going to agree with what the people in power say? You're no longer serving any useful purpose at all in that case, and certainly not in any kind of democratic system, which is what we claim to have in in the West, in the United States, even in Britain. <laughs> Whether we have it in Britain is another matter, but that's another story. Uh, but I mean, that's absolutely the case. I mean, that is the proper function of people who do public commentary. If you want power, well, it's very simple. Go into business, certain types of business, the oil industry, if you like, or the finance industry or something of that kind, or the arms industry, better still, perhaps, or go into the intelligence services, and that's, you can get it there too, or, you know, parts of the civil service, or heavens help us go into certain types of politics as well. But absolutely do not do it, doing the kind of work we do. I mean, if, if you're all about power, then frankly, you're in the wrong industry. And if you're in the, if, well, industry, you're in the wrong type of work and you don't belong here. <laughs> you are entirely, your, your presence is, is a corrupting one. Now, I'm going to say something else here. I think that not only should people who are, um, you know, try to do commentary, public commentary, 
public journalism, the way independent journalism, the way all of us, all three of us do. Um, uh, not only should we not be seeking power, I think we've got to be very, very careful when we get information from people who possess power. <laughs> I, I, and this is my own view. I mean, especially when those people are not prepared to come off the record, but then insist that you must publish what they say. You know, as a, I was given this information from this anonymous official in the White House and, and that sort of thing. Because the huge risk you run then is that you're just being manipulated. And you're being manipulated by people who have a particular agenda, which, all right, you might share it or you might not. But, you know, it's not the kind of thing you should be doing. You're not exercising critical control. So you've got to be careful about getting too close to people like that. There are very, very few people, in my experience, my opinion, who I would trust as independent journalists or commentators accessing people with power and getting information from them and getting their thoughts about anything. I would not trust myself with that. And I've worked in politics. So, I mean, I've all, I've seen how politicians, you know, try and, try and control the media. I'm going to say straight away, Robert, I think that you probably are one of those few people who could do it because, you know, you've, you've got the you're a centered person. You have also, I think, dare I say, a certain type of knowledge and experience and personality that makes you able to, you know, see through that sort of thing. But most people who operate in journalism, and as I said, I include myself, I am very, very careful. I don't want to get too close to people in power. And certainly I don't want to serve power. I don't think that plays any role in what I do. I don't think it should play any role in what the media does. Uh, exactly. I think like the irony of the or some of the interesting aspects of the whole Crowder Daily Wire thing was the Daily Wire started screaming and attacking him because he was exposing something about so, a lot of concern, even so-called independent conservative media in America that like people still don't fully know those that still get their information from Fox News, uh, unless you're Tucker, unless you're talking or following Tucker, almost everybody else on there. Uh, echoes the party line. Rupert Murdoch has been one of the biggest war whores in the world. He used the New York Post to tell every wacky, loony myth and lie about uh, Ukraine in, in particular. Wall Street Journal, as soon as J.D. Vance, uh, now Senator J.D. Vance, came out against getting involved in, in Ukraine and uh, any kind of no-fly zone or anything like that, the Wall Street Journal did a hit piece on him. In fact, I remember having a about an hour-long, maybe a little longer, conversation with Vance at the time he was making that decision because he was thinking about it, and he was going through, this is what the practical issues a political figure faces. He was uh, like, because like, people are like, why is there continued support for this war that by almost, by McGregor, you know, great military mind, top uh, Trump aide toward the end was likely going to be his national security advisor in a second Trump term. This is why John Bolton was going around screaming bloody murder about Trump, saying you don't understand where he's going. He's really going to pull America out of NATO. He's really going to cut a deal with North Korea. He's really going to, you know, not escalate any conflict with Russia, so on and so forth, was because a guy like McGregor was coming up the ranks, who particularly knew NATO well. I mean, that, that was his prior area of, of expertise. Anybody can follow uh, I mean, his analysis has been dead on 
all the way through. Really insightful, uh, really prescient. Uh, it shows what but Trump's second term could have been on that issue of foreign policy, whatever people think about Trump. Uh, otherwise, and so the, you, you, the but though but McGregor's voice you don't hear on the Daily Wire. The uh, uh, you don't and there's a reason for that. Uh, and it's because they react. What Crowder stumbled into was that the cancel culture clause was part of a broader aspect of gatekeeping the narrative, controlling the Overton window for perception. And that when they justify it by saying, but we have influence, but we have power, what they're really doing is their biggest influence is to undermine uh, public policy on issues like Ukraine to undermine our foreign policy, to undermine opposition to vaccines at the time it needed to be raised, to undermine opposition to masks and lockdowns at the precise time it needed to be raised, to expose how our elections are not operating the way they need to operate for people to have confidence in their integrity. They're on the wrong side of all of it for the most part. And Peterson's just the latest representation of that. And what is so, so, again, I come back to this. I mean, you know, this is a theme I always return to on these programs, and some people get very annoyed with me when I say this. But what, what this is, this, this media getting so close to power is so profoundly un-American. It's completely anti-American. I mean, you know, America was the country where, you know, they first started referring to the media as the fourth estate. It's the first country in the world that actually passes a constitutional provision which protects the freedom of the media, specifically. I don't think anybody else has done that, by the way. I don't think, I mean, if you, if you go to the uh, European Convention on Human Rights, which is, you know, the nearest approximation we have to a human rights charter on, and more like an anti-human rights charter on, on occasion, but never mind. But it doesn't actually do that. It talks about freedom of expression doesn't specifically talk about freedom of the media. And the point is that the people who created the United States, the founders, understood that the media, a free, independent, critical media, was essential in a democracy. And, you know, I know people always tell me, you know, that they weren't setting up a democracy. And I've already argued previously, I'm absolutely no doubt at all that that was the direction that they were always heading towards. They always understood that. And that's why you see that in the First Amendment of the Constitution. And look at some of the people who were involved, <coughs> sorry, in the media, <coughs> in the United States. Tom Paine, radical, extremist, difficult journalist, one of the founders, a person who'd almost been executed in France because he annoyed people there, um, got into huge trouble in England because, well, impossible for him to function in England. He's welcomed in the United States and he's given a position in the United States, which he would never have had in any other country at that time, because the United States then and later understood how important an independent media was as a key part of a political system, a balanced political system that made possible a democracy. 
because ultimately, without a media that's able to explain things, discuss things, where different opinions are expressed, different ideas are expressed, different policies are discussed, how are the sovereign people going to be kept informed? And that's what this whole political system of democracy ultimately is all about. So again, when you have a situation where the media and the state power join, that is a fundamental violation of the original conception upon which America, the modern United States of America, the United States of America that we all used to know and have placed such great value in, that that all goes away. <laughs> that That is no longer possible anymore. And of course, if you have a provision like the First Amendment of the Constitution, it is based always on the premise that the media and the political class will function separately. And Robert, you've made the point previously, and I think it's a very important one, and people should always remember it, that in historically in the United States, and by the way, in Britain as well, the people who ran the political system, the, the politicians, the leaders, and the journalists often came from different demographics. Journalist, journalism used to be a working class profession. Now, of course, it's not. All of these people today who run the media, who run the administration, who they're on the National Security Council, in the State Department, in all the alphabet of intelligence agencies, they went to the same schools, they went to the same universities, they met each other, they go to the same parties, they, they, they are always mixing. And that is a very, very dangerous thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what, and you see the shift. Like, if you go back and, and get the old articles and, and letters and archives from people at, say, Newsweek or people at Time from, say, the 1960s, 1970s, mm. you know, they're, they're complaining to Alan Dulles and others, please, I don't want to continue to just be a stenographer for the CIA. Can you please just let <laughs> out of this thing? Can I please at least pretend to be independent for a week? You know, rem remembering the old proverb, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Today, these kids are giddy about, oh, I have a CIA connection. I have an NSA connection. I have a State Department connection. This makes me important. This makes me relevant. This makes me cool. I'm like hanging out with James Bond. You know, the uh, so it's that sort of mindset. And you see it reflected in how deferential they are, despite when they get embarrassed. I mean, you would think you would be humiliated as a reporter if you got caught lying about the Iraq war, then caught lying about what was going on in Afghanistan, caught lying repeatedly about Russiagate. I mean, that is, it just continues to be unraveled because now we know that the, the Russian bots trying to shape American policy domestically and foreign, were, that was a fake story. Now, you guys were talking about that from the get-go that you could just use common sense and inference and know it's a fake, it was a fake allegation, but tons of people in America bought it. And of course, Twitter itself, as the Twitter files reveal, I don't know who in the Biden administration or the deep state ticked off Elon Musk, but man, that was a mistake because somebody did something that agitated him. So he's like, screw it. I'm just going to turn on the lights and see how the world looks. But the, uh, you know, be careful what billionaires you screw up, screw around with, mm. just FYI. <laughs> like screwing around with Trump. You know, the Obama decided to make fun of Trump when Trump came down to that national, uh, to the national press club 
uh, get together uh, in, I think, 2013 and humiliated him right in front of the whole crowd. That was the day Donald Trump was guaranteed to run for president. I was like, uh, be careful who you take off. But what it reveals is it was all fake. Hamilton 68 was the biggest election interference that took place. Hamilton 68, and it's a, I encourage people to look at it. Matt Taibbi is covering it in detail. Glenn Greenwald's covering it in detail. And what they, and, but what it reveals is the template for how the system operates. In, this, in that you have here, you, a lot of the government actors were just affirming or confirming things after the fact. The main people were ex-government actors, ex-NSA, ex-FBI, ex-CIA. Like the uh, FBI guy who helped run Russiagate turns out was, you know, corrupt, working for Oleg and some other Oleg. Right. Just classic, classic. But you look Absolutely. Like like, go, uh, so you, you, you look at that. It is really revelatory for how the system operates, how they corrupt the message, corrupt the narrative, how the you, you combine these think tanks with big tech, with co-opted. Uh, so-called conservative media outlets, and that's how you get fake narratives that shape people's perspective of foreign policy. Absolutely. I don't know whether you've read this long, achingly long piece from the Columbia Journalism Review about the media's coverage of uh, uh, Russiagate, and I've been reading it, and I'll be straightforward about this, Robert. I was reading it, and, you know, learning five years after the fact that the three of us were right all, all, all along. And, you know, the New York Times and the uh, Washington Post and CNN got it all, you know, they, they got it all wrong. But they, of course, they were always, always acting with good faith. You must always remember that. They were always acting with good faith. They were misled. They didn't understand. They got too close. I have to say, it was just an astonishing thing to read for me. And even this milksop of an admission, you know, that, you know, didn't they didn't get it quite right. It was all, you know, slightly wrong. You know, maybe Hillary had something to do with conjuring up Russiagate. Maybe Christopher Steele wasn't the most reliable person. You know, maybe there's some problems about some parts of the story. Well, even the, even this thing, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they don't mention it. I haven't seen a single reference to it, e even in these newspapers. They're still pretending. Well, I don't know what they're pretending anymore, but they certainly don't want to admit that they were wrong. They haven't come out fully, straightforwardly, and said, we got it completely wrong. And I'm going to say something, actually. Until there is a proper reckoning about, about Russiagate in American, American journalism, a, a dark cloud is going to hang over both journalism, that the Columbia Journalism Review got right, by the way, but also over politics in the United States. Because unless this thing is finally dissipated once and for all, unless it's finally acknowledged that that whole nonsense that was spread for all those years was absolute, complete nonsense, then one can't speak about proper media in America, and politics continues to be corrupted. Because far too many people in America, far too many people in Britain, most people I know in Britain, still continue to believe that the lies that were told during Russiagate are true. Because nobody authoritative has told them otherwise.
Yeah, I mean, these days, instead of the New York Times publishing the Pentagon paper, uh, papers, they are the Pentagon's paper. I mean, that, that's how the, the shift has really taken place. Yeah. And sort of an example of this that relates to a story that, uh, to a question that was in the super chats uh, of Andrew Tate in Romania. So I know Tate. I met him years ago. I've been waiting for you to to talk about this. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. The uh, so uh, for those out there, do I agree with all of Andrew Tate's view of gender relationships? No, I don't. I always took it as machismo, usually an over the top machismo that represents you know absent father figures and things like that. That's who I usually heard it from, and I, I'm, I was always kind of dismissive of it. But when I talked to him, I, he had very independent views, though, on a wide range of other policies about the World Economic Forum, Davos, globalism, foreign war, whether you should be drafted in the military, that I thought young men should hear. And I had encouraged him uh, to be more outspoken. I was like, you got a pretty decent, he already had a decent platform. It, it grew from there. But I was like, you already got a decent platform where people are interested in you, in you for their own, your perspective on these other topics. Why not use that kind of as a reverse Jordan Peterson? Uh, and I was use that access to people that are coming to you for this one principle to, to educate them on why they shouldn't, you know, go volunteer for foreign wars, why they should. That's not how you define a man. That doesn't, doesn't make you a man. That makes you a sucker. That makes you a sap. You know, don't get engaged. Don't be the pawn of politicians, so on and so forth. And uh, and then he and to his credit, about a year ago, he started doing it. He started using his platform to attack the World Economic Forum, attack pandemic politics, attack uh, Ukraine politics, attack a whole bunch of things. Now, I had had conversations with him about Romania. It's like uh, he had more confidence in the Romanian legal system than I did. The uh, I was like, uh, I'm not so sure about you know certain aspects. Like, make sure you protect yourself. Uh, the Romania has a reputation for a reason. Put it that way. They also still have wild dogs all around Bucharest, which is totally weird. At least last time I was there, it's like, what is this? And apparently, a bunch of them were released in the 90s, and now they're just roaming the city. I don't know if they ever fi fix that problem, but that's the permanent image in my head of Romania. It's like that in Dracula. So I've never had like a saying trust the government kind of approach. But you look at, you know, he's been in the webcam business for quite a while. You can dislike the webcam business, no problem. I'm not a fan. I don't encourage people to go into the business. Um, but uh, the but everything surrounding him was that he was not involved in any kind of illegal criminal activities. That you know, he's a charmer who gets who was very good at technology, knew the Western market, and so could bridge the gap between East Central European. Uh, women looking for an opportunity to make money uh, and the tech and knowing the audience, knowing and knowing the technological means of doing it, setting up a house that created it. But, you know, there have been occasional accusations against him over time, but nothing had ever come of it. I'd never seen any evidence supporting it. And so now all of a sudden he's uh, under uh, arrest. I mean, you, you got to love the Romanian system. You can go to jail without even being pro charged. <laughs> it's like, OK, what a nice system. Apparently, they can detain you up to two years. First, I thought it was 30 days, but some people were interpreting Romanian law to be longer. Some prominent ex-European prosecutors that have looked at the case have said the case looks very questionable and dubious to them. It has subsequently come out, but not been talked about a lot, that the Biden administration, that this arrest only happened after the Biden administration specifically requested that Romania arrest him and investigate him and basically shut him up.
And I don't think it has anything to do with this webcam business. The so-called victims say they, they've gone forward three different times to Romanian authorities and they've come out publicly and said, we're not victims. Well, we have no idea why you're calling us victims. We're, we're, we're not victims. A bunch of other women that worked for them said there was never any problematic behavior at all. And, you know, I rep represented victims of abuse around the world. It's not common for these uh, for traffickers, victims to come out and vouch for that person's integrity when they're not even connected to that person anymore in their countries and continents away. So I think the investigation is very questionable. I think it was brought for politicized purposes. And I think it relates to Romania's interest if uh, to the sort of hush-hush style analysis you guys did with your thought experiment. If you mm. look at Romania, there's a little part of Ukraine they wouldn't mind having back. And definitely they wouldn't mind having Moldova back in, in, the, in the fold. They've never really given up their claim on it. And the and Romania is clearly a staging ground for some NATO activities. Uh, more U.S. troops uh, are located there uh, on, on, on a regular basis. It would be one of the entrevues of any entrance of foreign troops into Ukraine. The main one would be Poland, but the other one would be Romania up by the part of the Black Sea portion that some people, like Scott Ritter mentioned, think Russia will take back as uh, Novo Russia, that they'll take back the whole Black Sea. And to take back the whole Black Sea portion of Ukraine requires they go right up against the border of Romania. Romania was considered the possible staging ground for some of the attacks on Snake Island, for some of the attacks on the, on, on the, on the naval operations of Russia, uh, including the ships. Uh, though whatever what actually happened in some of those cases still open to debate, but there's almost no way they could have achieved anything. If they did achieve anything, they had to probably use Romania as a staging ground in part for some of those activities. So Romania's complicity in this tells me that Andrew Tate is just the victim, the latest political victim uh, of what is really what's motivating them is not interest in whether his webcam business was run perfectly. They're interested mm -hmm. in shutting him up because he was reaching an audience that otherwise wasn't being reached. In other words, you have these sort of young men that are interested in topics of masculinity that aren't paying attention to uh, the media one way or the other, uh, or at least not independent media. And their source of authority is telling them this war is bogus. Uh, these international conflicts are nonsense. Don't join up. Don't volunteer like the, uh, the was it the British foreign secretary that was encouraging the Brit, you know, British mercs to go over there, you know, until they yeah. ended up captured and executed. Um, they, then they pretended they never did that. Uh, so I, I think that's the broader context of the Andrew Tate case. Now, I don't have any personal, well, I've limited personal ex professional experience with the Romanian criminal justice system. It was enough mm. that I knew I didn't want to have any further uh, uh, role. Um, but I, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that. No. Well, first of all, I, I have no experience with the Romanian system. I've heard I've heard things about it which would certainly not, you know, dissuade me from wanting to get involved in it. <laughs> and I think this is a, a long-standing problem. You know, I don't, I, know, I certainly wouldn't have advised him to, you know, I, I would have told him to keep very clear of that part of the world, that—that's my definitely the view I would have talked. And look, I, I'm not somebody who's familiar with this case at all, any of the details of it. But everything that you've just said, Robert, makes complete sense to me. And I have to say this: it is so consistent with everything else that we're seeing. Politicized cases, 
and from this administration especially, you know, what, what's this expression, lawfare, use of the law, use of the, well, not the law, actually, use of the legal apparatus, <laughs> the law enforcement apparatus, so-called, to try and go off your political, go after your political enemies. We're seeing this happen all the time, and I can completely believe, I have no difficulty believing that somebody who'd achieved some degree of, um, you know, sway over people of a certain demographic, important demographic, um, and who was coming up with views that the administration doesn't like, would be targeted in some way, and that the administration would use the levers that it has in Romania, which I am absolutely sure would be very, very susceptible to this kind of political manipulation <laughs> um, in order to basically silence him and not just silence him, but also discredit him by spreading stories and bringing claims about him, which frankly are going to damage his reputation amongst lots of people. I, I've seen too much of this now to really have much doubt that it goes on and that it could affect somebody like him. When I say goes on, not only does it go on, it goes on systemically, which is what's so dangerous. I mean, you oh, know, if absolutely. there's one isolated, one isolated case, that would be very bad already. But it's not just one isolated case. It is a systemic thing with this administration. So given that that is so, I am predisposed to believe what you say about this case, about Andrew Tate, is true. Well, it fits the old Edwin Edwards principle, which uh, Edwards mm. said the only way they were going to get him, great governor of great state of Louisiana, uh, famously beat David Duke in 1991 with a bumper sticker that said, vote for the crook, it's important. Uh, the, the feds <laughs> indicted him four times before they finally got him. Old school, democratic-oriented populist from Cajun country in Louisiana. His, uh, the, and so it, you, you, uh, but what he said was the only way they're going to get me is if they, uh, or he goes, if they really want to get me, you'll suddenly find me in bed with either a dead girl or a live boy. Uh, and that was, you know, Edward's way of putting things like Edwards was famous. Somebody accused him of sleeping with five women in a single night. And Edwards came out and said, that's a complete lie. He left before the sixth one came in. You know, that was Edwin Edwards. So the, but what it reflected is the weaponization, the political weaponization of Me Too accusations. Because we've seen it with Trump. That a lot of those allegations I never believed. They didn't make sense. They only happen when he's running for president, right? He's been public figure for 40 years, a lot of money for a lot of time. Only now do, do people want to do something about it. So much so that the New York Manhattan District Attorney is now trying to use the Stormy Daniels payoff case as the only way to hang Trump for criminal indictments. Uh, they're, they're obsessed with stopping Trump at any cost, uh, which should tell you something for even the people out there that are critical of Trump, uh, that there's something unique about Trump from the system's perspective. There's something about them they see as uniquely threatening that they don't see in anybody else on the prominent public square. The, but then you look at how they went after Julian Assange, right? They started yeah. off going after Assange on rape allegations that to this day I'll run to people and say, how in the world can you defend a rapist? And I'm like, do you realize what the accusation actually was? That the accusation was he didn't use a condom the right way? As I, I got a newsflash for you. If not using birth control as you told somebody you're using is rape, well, there's a lot of NBA players that got a lot of claims against their various baby mamas out there. 
that uh, said, hey, you know, don't worry, honey, I'm on the pill. And hey, surprise, surprise, you owe me 21% for the next 18 years of your annual salary. Right. The uh, I mean, that's who does most failure to execute birth control. Correct. We've never called that rape or sexual assault. It's insane. Um, and then and we've seen it. Uh, they took out Steve Wynn that way. You look at Steve Wynn. He starts to become friendly with China. He's uh, he has power within the Trump administration. He's using his billionaire uh, casino status to start being politically active. They don't like it. What happens? He suddenly gets me too. Doesn't mean the accusations in his case weren't true. I know all the stories here in Vegas. Uh, Steve had some interesting <laughs> traits, shall we say. But it's why did it happen? When did it happen? How did it happen? What was the real motivation for it happening? Uh, by the way, it kind of happened with Jeff Bezos. That a little story people aren't paying much attention to is Jeff Bezos is selling the Washington Post. Uh, he's he's going to buy a football team instead. I know a lot of the backstories of Bezos for reasons I won't get into. I don't represent him, but I represented other people that had concerns with him. Bezos became obsessed that he believed somebody leaked a bunch of private information. People remember way back about leaving his wife and certain texts coming out, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when he dug in, he concluded it wasn't his uh, purported, like people tried to convince him it was the Saudis even, other people. He dug in uh, and he concluded it was deep state type people. Uh, who were allied with competitors on big Pentagon contracts uh, and that that's why they did it. And he only bought the post to try to influence, make sure he got those fat contracts from the Defense Department. That, that was the only reason to get it. And when he found that out, he's like, screw it. I'm out of politics uh, and I'm stepping back. Uh, and then watch, they'll do it against Elon Musk. Uh, my guess is the next line of allegations won't be fraud or stock allegations, the rest. It will be me too type allegations. Uh, you know, Musk has in the crazier they are, the more Musk falls in love with them. I mean, there's no better example than Amber Heard that he dated for a period of time or Amber Turd, as some people call her, unfortunately. The uh, so the uh, you know, God bless the guy. Uh, you know, his Twitter has been backing up this personality called Eliza Blue, who uh, I had previously, Viva and I had previously interviewed, who was supposed to be about targeting human trafficking. You dig in and it looks more like an effort to liberalize human trafficking principles to the kind of Me Too allegations we were getting on college campuses in America, which were reduced effectively to, I regret uh, something happening last night, but not that anything was truly non-consensual in the traditional definitions, uh, legal definitions. Uh, of sexual assault. And so I think, you know, the, the, the me too strap, be skeptical. If you see a prominent dissident personality suddenly accused of a me too type scandal, that, that's all. I'm just, mm. it's going to keep happening. They've had too much success with it. Uh, they're going to keep pursuing it. I mm. would just tell everybody. And the, the irony of course mm. is anybody that knows these powerful people, these they're the worst me too abusers in the world. I mean, I mean, you know, that's always I tell my my daughter, if, if a guy tells you he's a male feminist, run, get as far away from possible, give him a fake number. Don't let him know your real name. Hit the door because they always end up like stalkers and creepoids all the time. The uh, and, you know, give me a feminist, but they call themselves a male feminist. Nah. Uh, so I think you're going to see more of this kind of uh, me too. look for it going forward so that you recognize it the next time it happens, uh, that what they did to Assange was never going to be a one off. Okay. No, absolutely. I have to ask, can I just ask you one question, Robert? Yeah. That, that kind of is bothering me a little bit. I'm curious about it, actually. Uh, Trump, the other day, he was in South Carolina and, and he was kind of laying out certain policies. And he was flanked by Lindsey Graham, 
And I was watching Tucker Carlson mm. last night, and he actually went into a little bit more detail about how Lindsey Graham mm. is Graham is going to be very much involved in the Trump campaign, and he's one of Trump's biggest supporters. And Tucker couldn't figure it out. So he's like, Trump, mm. MAGA, Lindsey Graham. He's like, what's going on here? <clears throat> I have to ask you, now that we have you here, what do you think is going on here? Ah, mm. one name, Nikki Haley, or neocon <laughs> Nikki. So Nikki Haley is the former governor of South Carolina. Mm. Uh, mm. So Nikki Haley, on February 15th, the day after Valentine's, as a love curse to the world, She's going to announce her presidential campaign. She is the deep state's favorite on the Republican side because they see her in the Obama, Trudeau, Macron kind of template that they like. But they prefer you be someone that's charismatic, intelligent, but that you have the added diversity checkoff points. Right. She'd be the first woman president. She's Indian American or whatever. I forget the back. But I think that's background. But foreign ancestry um and so they think oh she'd be perfect you know th this is the identity politics version of, of deep state policy you know have it look a little bit different but sell the same package and so trump's concern his primary concern is all the talk of trying to get desantis in the reason why he keeps attacking desantis is to tell desantis to stay home and don't get in uh that that's like people think it's uh ego and the rest and at time early on i thought that's what it was but as i've seen it develop and heard all the chatter out of dc and from some of desantis's circle you know what i had heard a year ago or maybe it was two years ago but yeah i think a year ago uh was desantis was was hooking up with trump and gonna run his vp that made perfect sense for desantis because he's got a terrible record as a congressman great record as a governor but awful atrocious record as a congressman uh i mean he his he said his hero was George W. Bush when he went for Congress. Uh, his, he said his icon who he wanted to emulate was Paul Ryan. The man whose foreign policy he followed once he got up there was Tom Cotton. He supported the Maidan coup and wanted more U.S. support for it. He three times voted for the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, the bad trade deal that would have further hurt American jobs that Trump tore up the moment he got in. Um, he's, you know, he's basically been a regime change champion. He did oppose bombing Syria to his credit. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, he was a neocon guy and his whole resume screamed deep state recruit. This is a guy from a working class background, but he goes to Yale, then Harvard, then the military. And when in the military, he's getting assigned to Guantanamo and uh, Fallujah. You know, you're, you're not that that's somebody's tailoring your career to get into a certain path. Now, personally, I wasn't surprised by some of his counter. Uh, uh, you know, WEEF counter globalist policies as governor because he's he's got a deep working class Italian background, Italian American background, and others, and that that you know that's a populist history and heritage that people tend to fall back on, uh, and that's why I think he still has potential uh, as a as a presidential candidate, but he would be a disaster. But there's reasons to be concerned too. Uh, right before he ran for governor, he said a bunch of anti-Trump things on the issue of Ukraine and Putin and all that jazz. Now, as governor, he's been mostly mute on all of it, uh, to his credit. And he's been publicly critical of the World Economic Forum. But so Trump is just, all the people in D.C. are really trying to elevate DeSantis as a distraction. I don't think there's any chance DeSantis runs. I never thought that. It's possible somebody fills his ego so big that he thinks he's going to do it. But he's, at heart, DeSantis is a pragmatist with a combination of deep state donors, and populist instincts. And where all that comes out in the end, 
Who knows? Might be like George Corley Wallace, who had three careers. Once as a pro-civil rights populist with Big Jim Folsom, then as a segregationist in the 60s, then as the guy who built the biracial democratic populist political machine in Alabama post-1972 based on black voters voting for George Corley Wallace uh, in overwhelming numbers. And so the uh, why? Because Wallace was a pragmatist with populist instincts and deep state donors. You know, I mean, uh, poor George Corley had to keep apologizing when he made the mistake of putting Curtis bombs away LeMay on the ticket as vice president uh, because he because LeMay kept talking about we need to nuke him. We need to nuke him. And he was like, Wallace, no, he didn't. He really didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. And LeMay was like, no, 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 we really need to nuke him. We need to nuke him. We got these nukes. We got to use them while we can. The uh, I mean, basically, his character was. Loosely, the George C. Scott character in Dr. Strangelove is based on Curtis LeMay, who was commander of the Air Force at the time. LeMay was the guy who was smoking cigars at Kennedy's autopsy, uh, to give you an idea of who LeMay was. But there's all these other sides of Wallace that, you know, that the people don't understand unless they understand he's a mixed personality. I think DeSantis is, too. But so the only person that's guaranteed to run against Trump is Haley. And Haley is the one that's going to have big defense backers, big military industrial complex backers. Murdoch's probably going to back her. Murdoch's waiting to see what's going to happen. But you're likely going to see, you know, watch the write-ups after she announces. See what the Daily Wire says. See what the Wall Street Journal says. See what the New York Post says. The Daily Wire loves Nikki Haley. So Trump's looking at the map. Iowa, he's probably okay unless Pence runs. Because Iowa is shaped by the religious conservatives. They're about almost half of the caucus vote in Iowa. That's why the polls are always wrong on the Republican side. They always underestimate the religious share. Trump probably should be okay with that vote. Pence could create maybe some issues, but he's almost persona non grata with so many uh, Trump, uh, MAGA supporters that I think he's DOA. I don't even think he'll run. And then, of course, as a topic we'll get into, he, like everybody else, you know, you know, has a bunch of classified docs, documents sitting at home because we overclassify everything in the world. And how are you going to monetize your prior access to the uh, to office unless you can say, hey, look at this little classified documents. It's your bona fides to get the payoffs from whatever consulting gig or other gig you're getting or giving. The uh, but so Iowa's probably okay. New Hampshire's trouble because the politics have shifted in New Hampshire. Trump really needs someone to challenge Biden or to have an open primary so that independent voters don't flood the New Hampshire Republican primary just to screw Trump. But all these Massachusetts types have moved into southern New Hampshire, and their favorite candidate is uh, uh, Buttigieg. I have a different pronunciation for it, but uh, I'll save it for uh, locals. The Because uh, uh, he's always complaining about how people pronounce his name. Uh, but that would be kind of a risk for New Hampshire. So what does it mean? What's always been the firewall for Republicans? South Carolina. But Nikki Haley is the former governor of South Carolina. Now, the, the Trump's only supporter in 2016 in South Carolina was the then lieutenant governor. The reason Trump put Nikki Haley and elevated her to position, knowing she planned on challenging him in the future, potentially, was to make that lieutenant governor governor. It was a reward to him for standing by Trump early on. That lieutenant governor is now governor. So he's got his support. But Trump is nervous about South Carolina. And he's concerned because of Nikki Haley more than anybody else. That's why he's saddling up with Lindsey Graham. Sweet talking, Lindsey Graham. And yeah, you're going to be special. You know, I, I'm going to li really listen to you. You're, you're really right, Lindsey. You really nailed that. You know, good, you know good, good hit on that last golf shot. Good job, Lindsey. You're the man. 
uh, is going to be a lot of that because he wants Lindsay under the belief that Lindsay will have great influence on him in exchange for Graham immunizing him in South Carolina from Nikki Haley. Interesting. I mean, does Nikki Haley have any chance at all? I would have, I mean, looking at this from London, I would have thought that she'd go down in flames, frankly. I mean, I, I find it very difficult. I mean, I remember her very well from when she was a U, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And by the way, an absolutely terrible, appalling, horrendous U.S. ambassador um, um, at the U.N. Not as bad as Samantha Power, but well... That's that be a hard feat to actually equal that record. So I mean, I, I I cannot imagine her, Nikki Haley winning against Trump. But then, maybe I'm getting this wrong. I mean, you know, I would have. I mean, what are the chances there, Robert? I mean, ask yeah. Well, I think you know people are experimenting with different. Uh, I'll be curious to see what nicknames yeah. Trump comes up with. You know, neocon mm -hmm. Nikki, nutty Nikki. Uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a couple of that, that potentially resonate. We'll see which one he, he pins on her. It, to a certain degree, it's great for Trump to have as his key opponent a big neocon advocate because the easiest way he can distinguish himself from her is by emphasizing what he's recently escalated doing. Here, the, the, the biggest leader in the Western world calling for immediate peace in the end of the Ukrainian conflict is Donald John Trump. It's like for all the criticisms people may have of Trump, many of them legitimate and understandable, he's still the number one leader in the Western world with any kind of political power or prominence saying, end the war now. Uh, that, we, that escalation is insane. I think as he put it was, first tanks, then nukes. No bueno. And now, you know, in, in Trump's own you know verbiage. Now, people will probably be thrown off a bit by uh, Trump, the way Trump will couch this. So he won't say, hey, Putin's a reasonable, rational, smart guy uh, that uh, doesn't read that that's a good guy that that we should just cut a deal with. Even if he believes it, he's never going to say that publicly uh, because the, the MAGA base is split between two different wings. On one wing is the old school American conservative populist anti-war, anti-foreign intervention tradition. That is the longest and deepest streak in it. But after World War II and the rise of a permanent military industrial complex in America, with lots of soldiers going through that, lots of people working in that industry, it created a, a, another parallel part of the conservative cause. And that is the machoistic militaristic wing. Now, these are people who often don't actually want conflict. But they want to see conflict resolved or prevented on the pretext of strength. Hence, you know, Reagan, peace through strength. Uh, George Corley Wallace, his approach to Vietnam. We're going to bomb the hell out of him, and then we're going to get right out, right? So he's got the peace angle, but with the macho angle. So Trump did this throughout his 2016 campaign. Like, people could never figure out, why is he talking about peace in one place and then talking about bombing the hell out of ISIS in the other? because he was trying to parallel that track of these two different groups. He wants the working class, macho, militaristic, you know, likely background in the military person to feel comfortable with his approach, even though his objective is almost always a peace-oriented objective. First president not to start a new war in a long time. Not a coincidence. So you'll probably likely hear that, that track. But what it shows, it's going to continue to put pressure on the MAGA wing of Republicans in office 
to uh, raise more questions about Ukraine, to have more skepticism towards Ukraine, no more money for Ukraine, to get the heck out of Ukraine. And you not only have McGregor doing what he's doing, which has been the best military analysis I've seen in the American media uh, by anybody. Um, I've tried to encourage him and his people to reach out to more places. But, uh, you know, and then to his credit, you know, Tucker Carlson has been one to to uh, talk about it. But almost nobody else at Fox does. Um, and and a few people at Daily Wire have, have done it, but not the not Ben Shapiro so much. So we'll see how much it reaches out. But when when Zelensky is a meme and increasingly he's a meme, it's like economic problems take on new meaning in the public parlance. When eggs become a meme, when it's like, hey, you really want to shake her up for Valentine's, get her a dozen eggs. She'll be the greatest thing ever, right? That, that sort of thing. When you see that start to reach popular culture, that sort of mass approach, that's now been happening with Zelensky over the last m- several months in the United States. Like now it's, do you want to make billions from home? Have your own home-owned business? I can tell you how. And it's a picture of Zelensky, right? You know, it's, it's Zelensky making the mistake of doing his Che Guevara impression. Uh, in the U.S. Congress was a mistake, right? The uh, showing up with the, the uh, like people are like, why is this guy in pajamas talking to Congress? Well, what, what is this? So the it, it's not how that that Che imagery that they've worked so well for sort of the millennial audience in certain parts of the Instagram world uh, doesn't translate to your older conservative uh, who are like, I don't want somebody who looks like Fidel Castro that I'm giving money to. Well, why is he dressed like that? It's disrespectful, that kind of thing. That did not go over the way they thought it would. Now, Bojo, Boris is over here, you know, uh, and Boris has been doing different parts of uh, his Western pro-Ukraine tour. And apparently recently, I just saw the headline, attack. He goes, have you heard about this Tucker Carlson guy? This guy's crazy. Uh, and it's like, ah, Boris, stick to lying about Putin threatening you, pal. The uh, taking on Tucker, bad idea. Like, that's the one person, if you're trying to appeal to American conservatives, you don't attack. Talking about the number one conservative media influencer in the United States. Uh, now, I would say he is a co-equal that goes under the radar that shows how independent media can really work. And that's, of course, the one and the only Alex Jones. There's a reason why he has no corporate advertisers. He has no big tech compliant policies. And he has, as is evidence by the fact, been deplatformed everywhere. Uh, and he doesn't take any sugar daddy billionaire oligarch cash. Um, but so uh, we'll see how all of that sort of translates in the in the end. But I think the the Trump's position on Ukraine, the fact that he's increasingly escalating the peace focus, it'll probably come with language that will say, oh, I'll tell Putin, do, 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 and he'll just sit, you know, that's how he'll sell it to the militaristic base. He doesn't really believe that because you can see how he acted for four years. He never actually threatened military power against Putin or Russia. He doesn't yeah. think that's the way to get there. He thinks that's a way to mm. persuade the macho part of his audience that thinks Putin is the devil, why and how a peace deal is a good outcome. But no question Trump's going to be running as the peace candidate in 2024. You know, you, what you just said reminds me of Reagan because Paul Craig Roberts, who uh, has told me in person, and he's also said it many times in public, and Jack Matlock, who was Reagan's ambassador to Moscow, said it very recently in public in a in an interview in which I was involved, um, that Reagan always had to balance the fact that part of his base wanted peace, but he had to always counterbalance that with the other side of the base, the people that you just exactly the people you described who didn't who who wanted peace through strength type sort of policies, and that in fact 
this rhetoric that Reagan had to use, which misled lots of people at the time, including me, by the way, was in fact all about keeping that coalition together and buying the political space to make the kind of peace deals which he eventually did. So I can completely understand that. I have to say, I was very interesting, um, actually, Robert, about you know Nikki Haley, South Carolina, the politics there. But of course, isn't there a danger that you know if you bring a person like Lindsey Graham into you know the it, you know it's the wolf bringing it into the hen house? In fact, I mean he's he's going to want something in return, I presume. I mean I don't know how uh, uh, you know well organized and sophisticated uh, uh, um, you know Lindsey Graham is. I don't know how popular or you know, powerful a figure he is either. But, you know, he's, you know, I would have thought not the particularly, not a person you want particularly close to you. That, you know, just, just, just saying, I mean, you know, just. Oh, I mean, no, question no question, there. but you probably get a sense of where Trump is going by the yeah. fact that a day after he's standing on the stage with Lindsey Graham, the biggest current war whore for the war in Ukraine, Trump's the biggest uh, outspoken uh, for immediate peace in Ukraine. So the that's why I think Trump's personnel problems will continue and are a major risk point for him, no question whatsoever. Uh, and that, but that's independent of and beyond Graham. I think Graham believes, and Trump has probably led him to believe that he that Graham would have direct influence on him during his administration in exchange for his support now. But anybody that knows Trump knows that isn't worth a whole lot. Good, better. <laughs> Otherwise, that Trump's going to do whatever he's going to do. And the key is going to be getting more McGregor's around him in a second term than Graham's around him in a second term. Um, but that's where I would pay attention to what Trump says on Ukraine as the best indicator of where he's planning on going in a second term. I think John Bolton is right uh, that Trump uh, I know it from people who are running the Office of Personnel and Management. That was the most populist wing at the end of Trump's term. And they were stacking up people to put in a second term that was going to dramatically shift Trump in a direction that matched up his policy to his rhetoric a lot more than happened in his first term. And so the and obviously, I don't think the Ukraine conflict ever happens if Trump wins or if Trump is declared the winner, I should say. Some people you know, have justifiable cause to believe he may have actually been the most popular choice in the Electoral College by the actual voter intentions. But that's another story for another day. But I think that that's where to, to focus on uh, with Trump is, you know, where that uh, what he says about Ukraine and the fact he's willing to be more and more and more assertive is, I think, revelatory. And you can also know how what the system thinks he's going to do by how much they escalate against him. So, like, if you go back, like when he bombed Syria. I bombed an empty airfield and called everybody six hours in advance and told them which airfield was going to bomb. So it was the, you know, it was, it was truly a, a show war. Um, the, but remember the media gave a massive amounts of praise. I think CNN was like tonight he became president of the United States. Um, so you can know what the system believes by how they react to Trump. If for some reason the system suddenly doesn't have any problem with Trump, the lawsuits drop, the criminal investigations go away, there's no challenging or contesting him or anything else, then I would be concerned. Uh, you're not, you're seeing just the opposite. They're trying to indict him in Georgia on election issues. They're running into 
legal hurdles because he committed no crime. That's always a problem when you want to prosecute somebody. Um, in the District of Columbia, uh, they're running into trouble on the classified documents case uh, because those poor lawyers stumbled into Biden's files at the University of Delaware and studied it and found a big stash of classified docs. Uh, then you, of course, and then so that's why you're suddenly seeing uh, they're going to go after him in New York and indict him for paying uh, Stormy Daniels for a non-disclosure agreement that really had nothing to do with the campaign. It's not, I mean, everybody at that point knew who Trump was. I remember telling people the excess Hollywood tape would not make a big deal because it's like most conservatives already knew who Trump was. None of them were, you know, holding him up as a personal moral symbol. Uh, you know, as people said, uh, you know, uh, in the religious community, I'm not voting for pastor I'm voting for president. Those are two different things. And that goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan, uh, who had been thrice divorced, uh, or at least twice divorced when he was elected over Jimmy Carter, the deeply uh, moral uh, uh, Christian, the by Christian conservatives who changed their vote. So uh, the fact the system keeps coming after him should tell you that they think Trump continues to pose an existential threat to deep state power. Uh, that So that's their opinion. And so that, I think, will be a better barometer. Now, on the classified document cases, my own view is I think it's a white hat that disclosed this, uh, not uh, a deliberate effort of the deep state to take out Biden, because they have other better, easier means to take out Biden. Every it's an open secret and has been for decades that Biden was and his family were one of the most corrupt political families in the history of American politics. His brother, his sister, his son, all of them cashed in on his name. That's how and it wasn't for themselves mostly because there always had to be a, a little at least a, at least 10 percent for the big guy. My guess would be a lot more than 10 percent. Um, and so and apparently it was laundered through rent payments is the latest apparent evidence that uh, the Hunter was paying uh, 40,000, 50,000 a month for a place that cost five grand, maybe on the high end that that's one of the great ways you launder cash. That's old school money laundering right there. Um, and is it a coincidence that they found additional classified docs at his home where Hunter was staying and they're just hanging out in the garage, apparently. Um, now, part of this is the problem Julian Assange long identified. We overclassify documents in America. Talking about Lindsey Graham, you see, that's his new excuse for deep state corruption with Biden. Because maybe, maybe we classified too much. Really, you think so? Um, you know, the, when we're classifying everything under the sun, the uh, the and and also Assange is right. We don't classify to protect national security. We classify to cover up government corruption. That's what we do. We classify so the ordinary American doesn't know the horrible, corrupt, bad acts our politicians do and those who serve them in the deep state or those who serve the deep state in positions of power, more like. So, but I think what, what appears to have happened is Biden's own lawyers reviewing the documents to bring up, discover, oh crap, there's classified documents. And because of the Trump scandal that they're like, I don't want to get in the middle of that again. I don't want to be one of those people uh, stuck on that, where they're looking at Trump's lawyers and what they said or didn't say about classified documents or documents marked classified. Um, and so in Trump's case, they could have been declassified. In Biden's case, they likely couldn't have been because he wasn't the one that originally classified him. And as vice president he or as senator, he didn't have declassification authority in all likelihood for most of those. 
and he's not governed in the same scale by the uh, by the Presidential Records Act that likely helps Trump that illegal defense. I, and and they all hit it. Chief of Staff had to leave from the Biden administration. The White House, Ron Klain, old corrupt hack, by the way, he's going to cash in, I'm sure, in five seconds anyway. But the uh, because he helped orchestrate the cover up, had to get the National Archives to shut up, Justice Department to shut up, FBI to shut up, NSA to shut up, CIA to shut up. And I think somebody in that group that is sees the allegations against Trump as bogus, like there's they're not a lot of white hats, but there are some white hats still within. And you see this on Ukraine, by the way. Now, you've seen less of it to a degree over the last six months. But remember, early on, somebody was leaking from the Pentagon repeatedly telling a very different story than the official story. And it would come out in different publications. Be like, no, nope, this isn't actually going the way they say. Nope, this isn't going to work the way they say. Nope, this isn't going to progress. And it's still happening. I remember, Alex, you referenced the Financial Times article that went through great detail uh, that said people in Wall Street are being in the financial world are being told something very different in the city of London than they're in the, the city of London, uh, rather than yeah. London, the city, um, is the, the than what we're being told out here in uh, ordinary middle America. So I think that the net effect of it is they leaked it not to take Biden out, but they leaked it to kill the investigation of Trump and the political weaponization of classified information. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, all the efforts to cover it up worked for the purposes of getting it to pass the election. But uh, it, it creates its uh, own. I think that's why that that investigation is going to die on the vine. I thought there was always mm -hmm. bogus legal prosecution anyway, but. It, it, it's why they're suddenly talking about Stormy Daniels and the New York DA who had mm. dropped the case is suddenly talking about re-prosecuting Trump is they've started to give up that they're going to get him on the classified doc issue. Um, now, that doesn't mean Biden doesn't have separate issues. You're seeing uh, continued publications talk about they don't want Biden to be the candidate in 2024. Media pollsters are running the like one way you know what's going to happen is the media will poll on topics they otherwise don't poll on. Mostly the media avoids polling on. Like, have you seen a major U.S. media-backed poll do a meaningful poll on Ukraine in a long time? You'll, you'll see it in some other places, but generally they don't poll on the topic. That tells you that they don't uh, want the world to know what Americans actually think on the topic in terms of giving a bunch of money, risking nuclear war, any of that uh, activity, putting our own boys at risk, uh, all of that, which I believe... Uh, is very unpopular amongst the ordinary American. Uh, but I think, I think we'll see some... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, okay, okay. I just wanted to say, by the way, about opinion polls, uh, it's also the case in Britain. Uh, remarkably few opinion polls and, you know, asking really searching questions about the Ukrainian issue. And uh, one does wonder why, and one does one sense that perhaps the people in Britain aren't perhaps quite as enthusiastic as their political classes about this affair. But uh, I don't want to interrupt, Robert. You, you, you're, oh, yeah, I was just going to say, in terms of polling, no. the fact that they're starting to poll replacing no. Biden, you know, they did a poll in New Hampshire that showed uh, Buttigieg would crush Biden. This is a sign that media, that the media and the, the deep state want to dump the albatross that is Biden before 2024, or at least on the 2024 ticket. So that part is still true. The hurdle is still Kamala Harris. You still have one of the most disliked people in the country. Uh, every poll shows she does worse than Biden against Trump or anyone else that could be the nominee in 2024. So that's their, still their hurdle. 
Uh, they could try to agnew her. Like somebody asked a super chat about what I think about Tucker Carlson talking about what Watergate was really about. Some of us have long had that theory. Mm-hmm. And I've actually proposed it uh, uh, in one of the hush hushes uh, was that uh, the the deep throat was deep state. Uh, in fact, I challenged Ben Bradley, the publisher of the Washington Post or the editor of the Washington Post, uh, way back on that topic when I was a young Yale student at a uh, event in D.C. Uh, I said, what if the real reason you're not talking about Deep Throat isn't because he's a great whistleblower, but because he's someone who would embarrass your coverage, because he was someone who would compromise confidence in uh, in your coverage because his motive might not have been so pure. And Bradley just smirked and didn't, re- you know, didn't respond any further. Of course, it turned out to be Mark Felt. Mark Felt ran COINTELPRO. Uh, Mark Felt was one of Hoover's key boys. And it was Nixon's attempt to de-Hooverize the FBI that led the deep state to take him out. Uh, now, Nixon facilitated that along the way in a hundred different ways. Uh, but there's no question it was the, the deep state wasn't going to accept any degree of replacement of their people in positions of power, even if it was done by someone like Nixon, who was often allied with deep state priorities on a wide range of international policy, including continuing the Vietnam War long after it made any sense or served any political uh, obtainable purpose. So I agree with with, with that aspect. Uh, But I think that uh, what the deep state did to Nixon, before they took out Nixon, they took out Agnew. Spiro Agnew, the vice president, more of kind of a populist kind of guy in his own way, at least rhetorically. You know, he wasn't going to deal with the nattering nabombs of negativism. Uh, And so if the system is going to try to take out Biden, look for them to try to take out Harris first somehow. If I was Kamala, I I wouldn't be taking any Ron Brown specials uh, of commerce to do some commerce business or vice presidential business in a war-torn region, just word to the wise. Um, But this also does, you know, going back to Agnew, one of his speechwriters, is a man who just announced his retirement, uh, the one and only uh, Patrick J. Buchanan, uh, who wrote me years ago when I was trying to get him to run for president as an independent candidate in 2000. He ended up actually doing so in the Reform Party ticket. Uh, But Buchanan's legacy, to me, is most intriguing because it reflects the trajectory of conservative populism in American politics, that before the Cold War, Pat Buchanan type conservatism was deeply anti-war, anti-intervention. The deep state did a brilliant job of using the perceived threat of communism to justify and be a fig leaf for bad deep state priorities around the world. So magically, anybody that was an opponent of the Dulles brothers uh, was now a commie, whether they were a commie or not, whether the origin uh, and, and they almost created their own reality. Because if you're, say, leading a peasant movement in Central America or a uh, anti-colonial revolution in Asia or Africa, the uh, that would be the reason the deep state in the U.S. would oppose you. But because the deep state in the U.S. was opposing you, you would have to have to turn to the Soviet Union for financial and military support, creating their own reality of these being communist-inspired revolutions, when often if you dug into the history, very rarely were they in fact communist-inspired revolutions. They're often just peasant revolts, anti-colonial revolts, uh, revolts against the local corruption of the government, stealing their resources from the people for foreign corporations or governments. And so, uh, but Buchanan reflected, I remember telling people in the late 80s that when the Cold War is over, 
uh, that, uh, and you could already see the signs of it then with Glasnost and Perestroika and the rest. I was like, you're going to see the return of anti-war populist conservatism on the right. And we're both saying, oh, you're nuts. You're crazy. These people love, you know, every war in the world. And as you pointed out, Reagan actually, you know, people look deeply. Reagan mostly avoided many wars. Uh, Reagan didn't give us Korea. Reagan didn't give us Vietnam. Reagan didn't give us World War I or World War II. As Bob Dole famously said, the 1976 vice presidential debate with Gerald Ford, if I could count all the dead from all the Democrat wars, uh, it's one of my favorite lines of Bob Dole. Uh, the, uh, is that was the tradition and Buchanan brought it back fiercely. Soon as the cold war was over, he became one of the leading anti-interventionist anti-foreign war voices on the conservative populist right challenged Poppy Bush in 1992 in part on an anti-war anti-intervention ticket that fed into Perot who ran on what Perot kept saying is let's all agree. No blood for oil. Uh, you know, that was a deeply populist message, got almost uh, over 20 percent of the vote at one point was leading in the polls in 1992. Uh, you know, then Buchanan would stay as an influence in 96 and 2000 and would remain a it started to shift the perspective of many people on the political right back to their populist, war skeptical, anti-foreign intervention roots. So uh, I get Buchanan's controversial on a wide range of topics and subjects. But in my opinion, his most impactful legacy was re reminding the, the conservative right that America was founded being opposed to foreign entanglements, being opposed to foreign wars, being opposed to building an empire, not being the minions of the deep state. Absolutely. Can I just say, I mean, on this point about um, anti war feeling i mean i i did a yeah i read a long study I, you know, I did american politics it was one of my big studies at university and i remember going through all the demographic statistical data about who actually opposed the vietnam war and it's completely different from what most people think if you're talking about uh you know what sections of american society were opposed to the vietnam war the first people who spoke out against it were republican conservatives <laughs> I mean, that's that it, in Congress. It was uh, the, the Democrats all basically supported it. There were just one or two who didn't, Fulbright and people like that. But basically, the, the main critics in Congress were conservative Republicans. And if you're going outside in the general country, it was conservative working class people, mostly people, you know, of above a certain age as well. This whole idea that it was student radicals and young people going out protesting, well, they might have been the people that you see in the pictures, but they were not by any means the primary demographic that opposed the war. And not only that, but that working class, that solid working class consistent uh, constituency that opposed the, the Vietnam War remained steady right through they were the people who provided the numbers. They might not have been very you know, demonstrative about it. They might not have been very vocal, but they were completely consistent about this. And whom did they vote for? Well, many of them, very large proportion of them were, were Republicans and conservatives and American patriots. But they did not see any reason why the United States should be involved in a war in Southeast Asia. And when you say about, you know, who started all the big wars, Vietnam, of course. It was a Democrat war, ultimately. It's a Democrat administration. Um, 
and of course Ukraine is a democrat wall and a democrat administration and Syria and Libya were also democrat wars that was where it all began yes Iraq was the republicans but Ronald Reagan actually didn't start any big wars he had an awful lot of rhetoric but he was always very very careful he always knew how far to go and when to stop he never lost control of what he was doing and he never let himself be pushed into doing things that he thought ultimately would be dangerous and reckless for the united states so i, I think that's a point that perhaps people don't fully understand about American politics and about recent American politics. But I remember reading all this, going through all these studies as a student. And as I said, it was an eye opener. I've never forgotten it. And it's if you, if you understand that point about where the real anti-war opposition in America comes and everything that I've seen since, by the way, is consistent with those early studies. Well, that makes that makes you understand an awful lot more about American politics since then. So I think that's absolutely right. I think what you said is completely true. As I said, uh, a certain type of conservative Christian American didn't like communism with its atheism, its materialism, its collectivism, all of those things, and understandably why. But they were never particularly keen interventionism at any point and you know they went along with a lot of the policies at one time but since communism left the scene they've not really been into it at all and it was inevitable it was absolutely logical that it would come and Buchanan no doubt has played a part but he's representative of the forces which have always been there. So I, I just wanted to say, and there's a number of quick things I wanted to say. You'd mentioned Boris Johnson, who's, of course, wonderful British clown, <laughs> if I can say that. Um, I, I don't know whether you're aware of the fact, uh, uh, Robert, that um, he criticised Tucker Carlson before the Atlantic Council, this appalling, hideous, neocon, think tank, outfit, lobby group, whatever, just after he'd agreed to appear on Tucker Carlson's program and then scarpered off. <laughs> he, he said, you know, who's afraid of Tucker Carlson when it turns out Boris Johnson is? Because he didn't dare go on Tucker Carlson's program. That gives you a sense of the kind of person Johnson is and, and the chutzpah of the man, because as I say, he runs away and then poses as the great hero you know, the person who is not really afraid of Tucker Carlson. And it's extraordinary how people still get taken in by it. And of all the people that the Atlantic Council could have chosen I mean, to, you know, to, to, to peddle this kind of message, they had to choose Boris Johnson. I mean, that is desperate, if I have to say. Now, desperate is another word that comes to mind about another thing that you brought out, which is the Stormy Daniels of if you're really going to go after Donald Trump over Stormy Daniels, well, all I can say is you are being very desperate indeed. I mean, this is the most investigated man, I think, in Ameri American history. He's had his tax, his taxes looked at. I mean, do you remember all that business about, you know, his tax returns, the dark, terrible secrets that we were going to find in his tax returns? Tax returns, we now can all see them. Well, is there anything there? 
Well, not really. I mean, it just does all the kind of things that, you know, very rich people do, which is no different from what he does. So tax returns, nothing. Um, classified documents. Well, they're all doing it too. Pence did it. Biden did it. Everybody's apparently doing it. But, you know, so Trump did it. And he's, he was the president. He can declassify anything he wants. And he has it all in a safe. In, in, a, in a safe, secure building where, you know, there's CCTV and guards. Well, you know, where does Scranton Joe keep his classified documents in his garage next to him? So what's the car called, Alex? I can never Corvette. remember. The Corvette uh, next to his 1960s Corvette. Uh, you know, anybody can wander around. Of course, his son is floating around too. And we know what a reliable keeper of secrets he is. So, I mean, you know, so that's that's gone down in smoke. We're not going to talk about Russiagate because, frankly, that's a bitter story. But every conceivable allegation, investigation that they launched against Trump, all I can say about Trump, I said it before, he must be the most honest businessman in the property business in America. I mean, I, I know a bit about property business in Britain. And I know the kind of, you know, corners these people cut and the kind of things they do and what a rough trade it is. The fact that they have found nothing against Trump literally astonishes me. I, and I, I have to say the only conclusion I can come to is that this man who's been so investigated and so relentlessly investigated is fundamentally, must be fundamentally clean. Now, that's something that people don't like to hear. I've tried to explain this to many people in Britain, that, you know, you talk all the time about Donald Trump, you talk about his corruption, you talk about his flamboyance. You don't know what you're talking about. If he really was corrupt, we would have the evidence by now. We'd have the real prosecutions. They wouldn't be scrambling up to set up silly committees with, you know, um, uh, what's her name, Cheney and all those people on them uh, coming up with uh, ridiculous reports that, frankly, nobody who has any idea about how prosecutions are conducted would possibly read and think that there was even a figment of a case there. So Donald Trump comes across to me as clean. I am surprised. If anybody had told me six, seven years ago that he was as clean as he was, I wouldn't have believed them. I'd say impossible to succeed in the kind of business that he does and not to have done some, some, you know, pretty dodgy things. Well, it turns out that he didn't. And if you want to resurrect the Stormy Daniels business, well, all I can say is good luck to you. I'm pretty sure whatever, whatever he did there, the kind of things that, any number of people in Congress, in the White House, well, in Washington, in uh, you know every state capital of the United States. And I'm not going to even start about what's going on in London at the moment, where I'm hearing appalling stories about what's going on in Westminster. I mean, really appalling stories about what is going on in Westminster. I mean, the word I've heard, by the way, is that um, corruption and hedonism now in political circles in London is completely out of control. Well, compared to that, Stormy Daniels is absolutely nothing. It's a zero. It's not a, a, a crime. 
not by any conceivable stretch of the imagination. And as for these payments, as I understand it, he, he basically took legal advice. It only turned out that the lawyer that he trusted to give him that advice was a crook. So where's, where's the problem? I mean, that, that lawyer was a crook. But Trump wasn't. I mean, so I mean, you know, it, the whole thing is just absurd. Well, I, I often re re tell clients, approach hiring a lawyer like you would a doctor. You know, you wouldn't go to the local Medicaid clinic for an important medical treatment proceeding. Uh, why are you going to go to your local strip mall to hire your lawyer? Uh, you're going to end up with the Michael Cohens of the world. Uh, but Trump couldn't help himself. He always thinks lawyers are getting one over on him. He wanted to go cheap and he paid the price for it. Um, you know, the, uh, I guess it's not surprised Biden's classified documents were in the garage. They probably weren't far from the ice cream freezer. You know, that's all he needed to worry about. But, you know, it is a sad world where Boris Johnson of the great British uh, debating tradition of the Oxford Union tradition uh, is scared to show up and just chat with a little for a little while with Tucker Carlson. But it does make sense the Atlantic would invite him because if you're going to invite a clown, the nice thing about Johnson is you don't even need, you know, you just need a little makeup because he's already got the hair ready to go. Uh, so, you know, the in terms of uh, just the insanity of all of that. But to understand kind of Trump in terms of a lot of rhetoric on the Ukraine and, and other issues, I always tell people clearly money wasn't his driving motivation because he's the only person since Kennedy to lose money while holding office. Uh, so the. Uh, you know, the everyone else is getting fabulously rich. Liz Cheney, fabulously rich. The Pelosi's have the best stock. If you could have been a part of the Pelosi investment fund, you would have made the best rate of return of anybody in Wall Street the last 30 years. Um, you know, you, you, your rate of returns would have been so good. You would have uh, welcomed the, the stalker with a nice little cocktail drink when the police show up at the scene. Uh, still with a cocktail drink in hand. Guy's got a hammer. You got one hand on the hammer and one in on a, on a cocktail drink. Who gets it? Who gets a cocktail drink when someone's got a hammer next to you? Uh, Paul Pelosi, apparently. Um, but I, I think Trump sort of reversed Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt said, you know, uh, talk softly and carry a big stick. Trump is talk big and carry a peace treaty. Um, and, and if people understand <laughs> that way, they can predict what he would be like if he's able uh, to get back, back into office. But to your point about the uh, anti-war streak in American politics. A great example of this is Wisconsin. I was arguing recently with people who were telling me, no, we got to support DeSantis because DeSantis is the only one that can win. And it's like, have you not paid attention prior to 2016? Democrats were so strong in the working class industrial North that the media took to calling it their blue wall. Uh, it was so impregnable and invulnerable. Paul Ryan, as a Wisconsinite on the ticket, lost to Barack Obama by seven points, four points more than the national margin. Democrats had outperformed Republicans in Wisconsin consistently through uh, since the Great Depression in almost every election, including McGovern and Mondale in 72 and 84, were much more competitive there than they were nationally. And But what you find is a strong anti-war streak in Wisconsin. So, you know, you find 1940, 1944, Democrats ran into more trouble than they did elsewhere. Why? Because of concern of World War I. You see, uh, Wisconsin was a hotbed of anti-Vietnam War activity in 1960, the 1960s. Uh, it was a place that, you know, someone like LBJ would have had no chance had he run in 1968 against either Bobby Kennedy or Eugene McCarthy. Now, Wisconsin's a place where 
George Wallace surprised people with some primary votes. But what they didn't realize is if you polled those same Wallace voters, their second favorite ca candidate was Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., uh, our senior, uh, running at that point uh, on anti-Vietnam War, anti-war platform. Uh, the So uh, Wisconsin 2004 was a place that around the country, Bush did three points better than he did in 2000. Not in Wisconsin, he did worse. Why? Because the Norwegians that dominate Western Wisconsin are notoriously anti-war, as are some of the German-Americans and other groups in the northern woods of Wisconsin. Uh, Trump was the first one to break through. Wisconsin was more Republican than the rest of the country because he could com uh, combine a coalition of working class voters in the industrial Southeast with the anti-war voters of the, of the Southwest with the old lumberjack country uh, that birthed both fighting Bob LaFollette and Joe McCarthy, the Northern Woods of Wisconsin. And they, they gave us both of those guys, which tells you something about the very deep populist streak and how it can go in different directions. That's why really only Trump poses a threat to the deep state in 2024. They don't believe, uh, either they believe, you know, DeSantis and others will be in their pocket, Nikki Haley clearly would, or they think that none of them can win anyway against the Democratic deep state pick candidate because of the lack of appeal. The way Trump broke through was on two issues, better trade policy to help an industrial policy to rebuild America's old manufacturing base, much as kind of the Brexit pitch was partially pitched up in the Midlands in that part of the UK, uh, but also being anti-war. There, there was, in fact, the biggest, strongest correlation was if you looked at a county that had the highest number of fatalities since 2001 in Afghanistan and Iraq, you also saw the biggest swing from Obama 2012 to Trump 2016. It was almost extraordinarily how correlated those two were. Uh, and that's why they want to take Trump out, is his dissident opinions on those topics. But it looks like their other agenda, going back to Andrew Tate, going back to a range of other topics, was that thought experiment you guys uh, went into on what the heck was happening, putting together a fascinating sequence of events kind of hush-hush style. It's like the history uh, episodes you guys have done in the past. You could probably do your own locals version of a hush-hush type alternative histories because I hadn't even put those pieces together at all until you guys did. And then I was like, oh, wow, that fits at so many levels in that you have the meeting at Davos where the ambassador uh, or, or the one of the top Lithuania, I think it was foreign, maybe it was foreign secretary, was there promoting the Ukrainian conflict. Not long after Davos, the World Economic Forum, the CIA director has a compelling need to visit Kiev, you know, and, and I don't think it was for the borscht. Uh, you know, the, I think he was. Uh, uh, and then not long after that, we get a sense of what he was there for. Because suddenly we got interior secretaries going down in unexplained helicopter crashes. Uh, suddenly we got uh, major media people being kicked out and dismissed. Uh, we suddenly got people talking about needing to flee to Israel or somewhere else with a bunch of uh, uh, Western cash in tow. Uh, suddenly half of the Ukrainian administration and key officials are getting purged. Uh, and then at the same time, you have, as you, as you guys pointed out, the Hungarians being targeted for conscription and being sent to the most dangerous part, the Hungarians, that, uh, the ethnic group that's within Ukraine, uh, to the front lines. And, and what's being reported is they're dying at a disparate rate. And then you add the, why are we sending tanks that Ukraine can't use anytime soon uh, in the name of Ukraine, whether it's Leopards or Abrams. And then, of course, you look it up, and the Poles, of course, have been training on Abrams for a little while. Um, 
And it's I, I always find fascinating. There was this guy, actual justice warrior, who's one of these sort of right-wing culture commentators. And he was on recently with a, uh, a show with a buddy of mine, Good Logic, uh, a lawyer guy. And they were just getting into a little bit of the Ukrainian conversation. And he was explaining how he had heard these stories about Bandera being a bad guy, but he looked it up and Bandera was imprisoned by the Nazis, so he couldn't be a neo-Nazi. And it's like, no, they locked them up because they went even crazier than the Nazis did in Western Ukraine. It's probably why Israel and Israelis are not really eager to send military aid to Ukraine. It's not just about not wanting to get sideways with Russia while they're sideways with Iran, but also not necessarily help some people that uh, at least a few folks in Israel still have memories of what the Ukrainian nationalists did when they got power uh, allied with the Nazis before even the Nazis were like, whoa, that's even much for us. I mean, that's how bad some of those guys were uh, in, in the purges they did, they did in Western Ukraine. Some of the worst images we have from those kind of purges in World War II come from what the Ukrainian nationalists did. But you get a sense of where that perspective is. But when you guys combine that sequence, I was like the most logical explanation. And then you see Jordan Peterson and, their, and, and drone attacks on Iran and, and escalation in that field. Though I think you guys' analysis is, uh, it makes the most sense by far to me, which was this was an effort to take out you uh, Iranian providing drone technology and drone support to Russia in the Ukrainian conflict which I'm sure Netanyahu is happy to do because he's obsessed with bombing Iran anyway. Um, that's something I've never quite understood the Israeli angle on. I was like, I get it, existential threat. Uh, Iranians chant, you know, death to Israel. I get that part of it. But how is uh, destabilizing Iran uh, and escalating conflict going to solve your problem? Uh, how did that work in Iraq? How did that work in Syria? How did that work in Libya? Not well, maybe. Uh, so, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll see with all that. But I, the... But I thought that sequence of events, you put it together, the most logical explanation is partitioning. And it was reminded me of listening to this guy, this actual justice warrior guy, completely butcher what's happening in Ukraine. I realized how many people don't know the whole Polish-Lithuanian history in Ukraine. That the Polish-Lithuanian Empire dominated Ukraine for longer than the Russians dominated eastern Ukraine. I mean, that goes way, way back in terms of the alliances there. And God bless these Pol Polish nationalists who now have power in Poland. But you can tell there's some of them that, you know, they'd like to, you know, get, get back into business. And then when I see the Lithuanians, it's like, what do they want to do? Recreate the Polish-Lithuanian Empire all over again? I'm sure yeah. some Germans aren't thrilled about that idea. No. Uh, but I think your analysis that this was more putting a plan in place for the possibility of partitioning Ukraine as the backup plan to when the Russian troops start waving in. Talk now of half a million Russian troops. Uh, doing a major assault. There was a Ukrainian military official today saying that they believe that they're going to attack also from the Black Sea and start going into Odessa in that region uh, soon. That the backup plan is partition Ukraine, divvy it up, and the Poles want to recreate a little bit of the Polish-Lithuanian Empire all over again. Though you got to wonder how that worked out for them last time they tried uh, because Bandera was initially in prison for his terrorism against the Poles, not against the Russians or the Jews. Uh, but I thought that analysis put together a lot of things that otherwise didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, is What do you guys think currently, given the updates from the last time you guys talked about that? I'm going to say, first of all, can I say thanks for, for that, uh, um, Robin? Can I just to say we went through that mental, that thought process. It was entirely spontaneous. We did it 
over the course of the program. Well, a lot of things are happening now, and they're all very interesting. The first thing to say is that the purge in Kiev is continuing. And the next person, the person who's now being targeted, and the big target now is the defense minister, a man called Reznikov, uh, Alexander Reznikov. Has been, uh, 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 there's now a petition to have him removed, and there's a talk, increasing talk, that he is going to be removed. He's pretty close to Zelensky, by the way. So it does seem to me increasingly that it is Zelensky's supporters who are being steadily and systematically picked off. Started with his spin doctor, Aristovich, who's now become gone completely off piece. He's now saying Ukraine is losing the war. It's going to lose the war. There's no real chance of we going to win. He's going to be has to be very careful what he says because he's still in Kiev. And by the way, just for your information, he's an ethnic Russian. He was born in Georgia. But like the head of the Ukrainian ground forces, who's uh, General Sirsky, he's also a Russian from uh, Vladimir, which is in a, a town near Moscow. And he studied in the Moscow Higher Command School during the Soviet Union. Just, 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 just saying these little details, which most people aren't aware of. But anyway, um, so Reznikov is now clearly. Uh, a target, Kolomoisky, Igor Kolomoisky, who was a big league oligarch in Ukraine. I mean, you might even have come across him, Robert, in your legal work because his tentacles are everywhere. Well, he's widely, widely believed to have been the person who basically um, controlled Zelensky at one time and who sponsored him in his political career. And, uh, Kolomoisky is now under investigation. His house was searched by the Ukrainian security police. Now, I have to say, it, it, all of this cum accumulating now, and it really does look to me as if the ultimate target now is definitely Zelensky. And I think Zelensky is the kind of person who would not go along with a plan to partition Ukraine like that. I mean, his position has been so much about fighting for every conceivable inch of Ukrainian territory that for him to agree to some kind of partition plan, um, I, I can't see politically how he could do it. So I think he's both erratic, volatile, nuts, in fact. I mean, he's, he's bonkers to say it bluntly. I mean, some of his speeches, some of his comments recently. I mean, he's now, by the way, talking about Ukraine needs 400 tanks and 200 fighter jets from the West. I mean, you know, you give him more, he doesn't ask for more, he asks for much, much more. And then he asks for even more beyond that. And he says increasingly weird things. So I think he's becoming increasingly unstable and eccentric. But I think he's also a problem towards a move now to try and find some solution to this war. Because the most interesting thing is we're now starting to see more and more admissions in more and more places that the war is lost. And, um, I mean, there was even a report today in The Guardian of all places, the first time I've seen a British, uh, a Western media outlet, for example, admitting that the Ukrainians are now mobilizing people by grabbing them in the streets. The Guardian actually reported that today. I mean, that's astonishing. I mean, that's something I've never seen before. But on top and beyond that, there's been three, three big reports. 
One is one by the Rand Corporation. And Robert, you know exactly what the Rand Corporation is, one of the most sinister and frightening <laughs> organizations on planet Earth. But anyway, they said um, US interests are not served by a prolonged war. Ukraine is not winning the war. It can't achieve a breakthrough. It cannot retake Crimea. The only prospect, the best prospect, if the war continues, is a stalemate, which is contrary to U.S. interests because it might escalate out of control and it is eating up our military reserves our, 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 and is destabilizing uh, not just the global economy, but the particularly the economies of our European allies. So our interests are not served by a prolonged war. We have to start looking for some kind of way out. So that was the Rand Corporation. Then there's this other organization, the CSIS, which Alex is always reminding me what the in stands for. But my sense of that is that that's the military industrial complex. And it turns out you were absolutely right about this, Robert. You said months ago that the uh, that the military industrial complex would not like to see its weapons used in Ukraine because it's bad for business to see Abrams tanks and <laughs> F-16 fighter jets, you know, being blown up on the battlefields. And in fact, uh, um, whenever there's a new arms delivery, and this is, this is something I was completely unaware of, uh, um, it, it was pointed out to me. In fact, every time there's a big arms delivery, I was expecting that, you know, they're Pulp, their share prices would rise. Actually, they tend to dip, and overall, they haven't been doing that well this last you know, this last year. I mean, they they've their share prices are falling further, and of course, they're under a lot of stress, and they're not getting the 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 orders that they expected because the orders was the order book was supposed to be thirty billion dollars to you know make up for all of these weapons that have been expended so far they've only been given orders for 10 billion dollars sounds like a lot but for them it's not and they're having they're having problems they're having strains they don't like to see their weapons used in this kind of war their ideal war is a very expensive war against a, a pitifully weak opponent <laughs> which uh, you know makes lots of money but you know there isn't going to be any real prospect of seeing your aircraft being destroyed or your tanks being destroyed that's that's good for business this kind of war is not ultimately good for business the cscis says u.s military industrial complex is not yet ready to start churning out the weapons and the vast numbers that would be needed you know we need to turn it round. we got we need a five, 10 year window to do that in. And of course, we don't have a five to 10 year window in Ukraine. And lastly, that's the most intriguing report of all from the International Monetary Fund. And can I just say, everybody got it wrong, except the three people who are engaged in this discussion, because this is about Russia. Everybody said Russian economy, Paper tiger, gas station masquerading as a country. It's going to be cratered by the sanctions. They're going to suffer a 20% GDP contraction. They're going to have hyperinflation. The ruble is going to become rubble. Well, the IMF now has suddenly revised its outlook for the Russian economy in 2023. In October, they were saying it was going to suffer a 2.3% contraction, which already is far less 
than was being claimed el elsewhere. But in just a few months, they've revised that and they've now said that it's going to achieve growth. <laughs> so it's not going to collapse. Russia is not going to collapse. Our industries, our military industrial industries are under strain. The economies of our allies are under strain. The military situation isn't going well. And we have to find some way of ending this war. And I was reading an article in Politico just shortly before we did this program. All very interesting. Military people coming along to Congress, speaking to the House uh, um, Armed Services Committee. They say there's no real prospect of Ukraine being able to recapture Crimea. Well, I'm sure that's a huge surprise to the three of us. But anyway, it's now the military, the uniform, always important to stress, the uniformed military saying these things. And at the same time, I read this man, I think his name was Rogers, Mike Rogers. You probably know him, probably a neocon to the hue, you know, died in the world, world neocon. But he says this war has to end by the summer. We can't let it go on beyond the summer. And it looks like. Ukraine isn't going to get Crimea back and they've got to start asking themselves in Ukraine what is victory, what does victory mean? Because there's no way that Russia's going to give up Crimea, no way Russia's going to give up other territory. So since it's got to end in by the summer, what does that sound like? It sounds like he's talking about some kind of way of bringing this to an end. But of course, what they're talking about is not the kind of peace agreement that perhaps the three of us would like to see. They want to see some kind of resolution to this conflict that will let, let them move on to the next place, the next war, if you like. So partition between Russia and Poland of Western Ukraine. Poland taking over Western Ukraine, trying to send the Polish military in to Western Ukraine. I, I have to say all the pieces are falling into place and you can see some of the motivations. There's only one big, there's one big problem with this, which has already emerged. And that, interestingly, is in Poland itself. Many people in Poland are very unhappy Many people in the Polish military are very unhappy. And the level of resignations of professional soldiers and officers from the Polish military is now apparently reaching catastrophic levels. So they have to do it fast and soon whilst there's a Polish army still to do it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, if they know their history, integrating that region won't, won't necessarily go over so well. And we've already seen some of the conflict with just Ukrainian migrants to Poland at some of the culture conflicts that that uh, evolve from that. The military industrial complex, the neocons have an amazing ability to have complete amnesia about their failures. Because if they were smart at this point, they would say maybe we shouldn't recreate Korea or Vietnam. Those are very good analogies, by the way, how we handled the Vietnam regime and how that was the deep state behind changing the regime, shifting the regime, pretending that that would solve the problems, the different purges the U.S. sponsored in the South Vietnamese government, et cetera. Um, but, you know, Korea didn't work. Vietnam didn't work. Iraq didn't work. Libya didn't work. Syria didn't work. Afghanistan didn't work. 
that what we needed, if the deep state or the military industrial complex wanted some good advertising for those uh, uh, over expenditures on various defense projects, is give, a, you know, another Grenada, you know, the, uh, 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 you know, another Panama, not another Beirut uh, or anything like it. But they clearly have not learned their lesson. I mean, Reagan did. Reagan figured, okay, this isn't working Beirut. We're out of there. But hey, don't worry. The you know militaristic side of my base will take back Grenada from the commies uh, who've taken over the university uh, or whatever it was. It was supposedly our excuse for going in there. Very wag the dogish that that was. Not as wag the dogish as, as as what Bill Clinton did, where he took the literal script from wag the dog to go into Yugoslavia. Uh, he's like, you know, I mean, the, the where people forget wag the dog. Where do they fake the war? Albania. That's where they fake the war. They, they even had, you know, people going through the snow as fake uh, refugees. And then I remember watching a CNN episode that supposedly had refugees going through the snow. And I was like, there's no snow that time, this time of year. It's like, it was like his classic Clinton, you know, a little wink and a nod to let people know what he was really capable of in the middle of a sex scandal, no less. Um, also because these people look at these old scripts and they think they're scripts for doing things. Like when they brought in Zelensky, they're like, what could we use for good presentation? Oh, 1984. Yeah, we'll use a 1984 backdrop. That's really impressive. That was really impressive in the movie. It's unbelievable. But, you know, you can understand Zelensky in terms of uh, wanting more, more, more. He figures if you got a line of Coke, clearly you got a kilo of Coke you can give him. Uh, you know, it's the same mindset mentality. But uh, as to Igor, that started a couple of years ago in the U.S. So Igor gets Igor helped fund a lot of the crazy militias, the, the hooligans and the neo-Nazis who became actual militias, who then became part of the Assoff battalions, then became infiltrated into the interior secretary and even to large aspects of the Ukrainian military architecture. A lot of it was funded by Igor, even though Igor is Jewish, because Igor cares about uh, what Igor cares about. He cares a lot more than he cares about his Jewish identity uh, in terms of promoting certain politics. Then he promotes, he helps uh, bankroll Zelensky's entire media career, then parlays it into politics. Not long after Zelensky wins, Igor wanted Zelensky to unfreeze certain key bank accounts, uh, certain banks of funds that were frozen. And basically, Igor made the mistake of thinking he was the boss of Zelensky, not the deep state. And the U.S. at that time, those relatively low key, not a lot of media attention, brought several actions in the United States against Igor's assets here. And it was the beginning of a message to Igor, you work for us, we don't work for you, and Zelensky works for us, Zelensky doesn't work for you. Igor kind of backed off, but never fully backed off. Now, he did take a plane to Israel to be extradition-free, so Igor got that part of the message. He's like, I'm out of here. Like, apparently several others are like, Igor did it, that's where I'll do it. Like, one of the defense officials or whatever supposedly running with all the cash trying to get to, to Israel. Saying, you know, hey, I, 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 I'm Jewish all along. You know, just protect me now. Uh, so the uh, so it's not a surprise. But Igor, because he had that prior history, it would be just like the deep state to say, this is a key guy we got to remove. We got to make sure his allies and his finances don't prop up Zelensky. So Zelensky understands he's completely dependent on us. Indeed, if you go back to when they went after Igor, it was not long after Zelensky started making peace type statements after he first got in. People forget the guy ran on a peace ticket. You know, he's going to bring peace to Ukraine. Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, the guy's just a, you know, he's a coked up actor uh, who, who, who now is scared and confused about where his world is. Doesn't know which script he's supposed to be in. And, you know, he's flipping back and forth. And so the... Uh, uh, but the it was after he went to Donbass was actually and other places was threatened by various Assoff battalion people for some of his statements there about maybe we can work something out. Not long after, 
all of a sudden the U.S. Department of Justice initiates initiates two asset freeze actions against Igor, and then a month later uh, Zelensky's singing a different tune on the Donbass. Uh, let's not worry about those Minsk Accords, uh, you know, as they've now all admitted were just a crock to begin with. So the uh, 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 a show to buy time. But as to your economic question, you know, absolutely that the big gamble that they could use this conflict as an excuse to show that Kissinger's hierarchy of power was right. And it turned out and that Putin's thesis that he advanced all the way back to his economic thesis in in the late 1990s, which was, you know, uh, this Kissinger was if you control food, you control people. If you control fuel, you control countries. But if you control money, you control the world. And globalists believe they control the financial system so they could dictate to Vladimir Putin terms. And it wasn't just to prove that to Putin in Russia and recolonialize the country by the Western elites, but also to show the whole rest of the world. See, this guy stuck his head up and we whacked him. So you better get in line. Now, of course, it's all backfired. That's why Kissinger has been screaming from from very early on. uh, "Okay, this didn't work out. Time to get out. Time to exit. Time to exit because he didn't want to see his whole thesis proven false, that Putin's old thesis that, no, it's fuel and food and military power that matter. Your money is just pieces of papers and and digits on a screen, and it only represents something to the degree it represents actual military food or fuel. And we in Russia, we got a a lot of those three, uh, food, fuel, and military power. He's been proven right. And I always thought, they were less aggressive in the military conflict than anticipated because he was worried about the opinion of the global South because he needed the global South to be aligned with him to win the economic war being waged against him. Now that that's fading, I don't think he's as worried about that now as he was then. Uh, Russia's probably going to start taking off more and more gloves in how they attack and how they deal with things. Probably see more airfare, continued attacks on the Ukrainian energy system, and probably much more aggressive military actions, uh, you know, the given if, if the, uh, the premonitions of either Scott Ritter or Doug McGregor or others are right, that they're planning on a major assault or what we're seeing in the news being reported today. But on the economic side, what's fascinating is I've been exploring this theory, this thesis that uh, someone by the name of Jeff Snyder, Eurodollar University has. And his theory is that the financial system the central banks lost control of the global financial system in the post-war era. And his theory is that what happened is the dollar had the sufficient elasticity to maintain a global economy in an international age. And that tons of countries and private banks started issuing currency. In other words, I think it's 65 trillion in dollar-denominated debt around the world. It's only like $4 trillion actually in print. So we have a mismatch and that the Federal Reserve and the central banks, even the ECB since its establishment, have been trying to maintain this illusion that they can control monetary policy, that they can still shape it. And that there's been these glimpses in the long term capital collapse and the Nasdaq dot com bubble and the the so-called housing bubble and the great financial crisis. Those glimpses that they don't, that they can't, that they want to, but they have nowhere near the control they think they do. What they can do is help sink their economy domestically by whether it's crazy economic sanctions policies in Europe on energy from Russia, or it's in the U.S. where one key aspect of the U.S. economy is housing because people use it to borrow against the equity, not sell the home. 
borrow against it at low interest rates to fund discretionary investment and income and spending. The problem is that's going to collapse as the interest rates spike. So all of a sudden, this big source of discretionary income is gone. All the stimmy checks are gone. All of the, the pandemic spending, for the most part, is gone. So the, d- the demand is going to start to go down, and it's going to be interpreted as reducing inflation when what's really happening is people just aren't buying as much. Uh, in December, in both the U.S. and Germany, they saw unusual drops in consumer spending. And what the Fed may do in the ECB with them, I agree with Tom Longo that there's kind of conflict there. But what they may do is not actually control the monetary system issues that are now kind of beyond their control, but instead sink both the European and domestic U.S. economies in ways that could create all kinds of political turmoil in the upcoming elections in both uh, continents. And meanwhile, I think another reason why the global South wants to divorce itself from the U.S. dollar isn't just the political weaponization by the United States of the dollar that they've revealed in the attacks on Russia, though I think that accelerated the timetable for their action, is that the problem in so much global denominated debt is that when the dollar value goes up, the cost of that debt goes up. And what it's doing, the the, uh, economic officials for the part of the Indian government have been talking about this, it jeopardizes everybody around the world. Suddenly, something that's designed to deal with inflation in the United States ends up doing economic damage to global GDP, to global growth, to global labor force participation rates, much of which has never fully recovered from the global financial crisis. So I think that uh, the, the fact, it reminds me a lot of the 1920s that the, and the 19-teens, the combination of disastrous military geopolitical strategy that led to the collapse within four years of the Russian Empire, German Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, empires that had lasted centuries, then was succeeded by banking and financial mismanagement that gave us a financial collapse that gave us the rise of both totalitarian regimes under the name of communism and totalitarian regimes under the name of fascism, which then ultimately birthed one of the worst wars in the history of humankind. And so I think our risk factor continues to escalate while some idiots in the State Department want to start a war in Iran and want to start a war in Pentagon because the defense department, because the military industrial complex thinks they need better advertising. And because neocons have their own version of Gellerman amnesia, that they forget all of the litany and uh, litter of mistakes and failures in the past half century. I completely agree with all of that. Can I just add, by the way, that one of the great tragedies of modern history And one of the great mistakes that was made was the decision in 1944 at Bretton Woods to make the dollar the the international reserve currency. Um, You know, Keynes, I know many people have very strong feelings about John Maynard Keynes, and I'm not here to defend him, but he did warn against it. He said this is not a good idea. And, you know, look at the position, the economic position of the United States in the period just after the Second World War. It was far more dominant at that time in terms of manufacturing than China is today or will ever be. The United States by itself accounted for something like 60% of world manufacturing output in the period just after the Second World War. GDP, I'm not even going to try and remember what the figures there were. Gold reserves, they were colossal. What happened 
with making the reserve the dollar the reserve currency, which of course had various iterations. There's the first, you know, pure Bretton Woods iteration where everybody all the currencies are pegged to the dollar, and the dollar is pegged to gold, um, at least in terms of international trade. Well, that at a stroke meant that the United States opened its markets to its so-called allies. So you saw the enormous expansion of the European economies by selling goods to the United States. The United States starts to run a structural deficit uh, respect, you know, with respect to the European economies. It gets much worse in the 1960s when US factories are having to be committed to sustaining war production both for the global arms race with the Soviet Union and to fight the war in Vietnam. So we have the collapse of the Bretton Woods system in 1971 because it's unsustainable. There isn't enough. They started to get worried about gold being shipped to France and all those kind of things. So Bretton Woods is unsustainable, but they still keep the dollar as the reserve currency. They now use oil as, you know, they create the petrodollar. They create all kinds of other mechanisms and devices and all sorts of things. But the underlying point of all of this is this colossal manufacturing, industrial, technological, scientific machine that is the United States with its enormous, you know, enormously highly educated, highly trained workforce that you have in the 1940s and early 1950s, it is gradually being frittered away because it's carrying on its shoulders the burden of sustaining the dollar. Now, this is something people don't understand. They always assume that empire benefits the imperial nation. It benefits some people within the imperial nation. The majority carry the burden of empire upon their shoulders. Britain, which had been the great workshop of the world in the 19th century, it steadily lost its industrial leadership. It's gradually deindustrialized. And you see exactly the same pattern happening to the United States because economic energy and political energy is being squandered trying to sustain these things. If the dollar loses its reserve currency position, Robert, you're absolutely right. At that point, central banks, and you must understand that we're talking about the Fed, but it's really an alliance of central banks, all of which are working together to maintain the dollar system, which basically means moving vast sums of capital backwards and forwards. Much of it goes to New York, doesn't filter its way across the United States. Much of it stays there. That's why there is so much inequality in the United States at the moment, even as industrial energy, manufacturing energy has gradually dwindled away. But anyway, not only will that consortium of central banks lose power over the way that the economic system is run. And bear in mind, what they're trying to do is a kind of central planning spread out on a global way, which is, of course, what's also led to this whole I these ideas of globalization. The WEF has got itself attached to all of that. But that's where that's all come from. The ability to control supposedly money flows 
through the through the dollar system. Not only will we see the end of that finally, but we will also, I believe, I always get criticised for saying this, we will see the United States, which is a different country from Britain, with a different political tradition and a different economic landscape and economic culture, finally liberated from this burden of carrying the dollar, the supremacy of the dollar, and all of, all that that implies. And yes, the United States will not be able to use its economic power to control, you know, what goes on in West Africa or interfere in Myanmar or run things in the Philippines or meddle in Libya or start wars in Ukraine. Why is that a problem? Why is it anything else other than a burden on the American people when their government and their leadership is focused on those kind of things. So I think it will be a liberating event for the United States when it happens. And I remain absolutely convinced. In fact, I am sure that when it does happen, as it must, that at that point, all the underlying strengths of the United States will kick in. And after a certain period of turbulence, which there's bound to be, um, provided the constitutional settlement holds, we will see all of the underlying strengths of the United States reassert themselves. Now, I say this, I say this in many places. Most people I say them to, those that know about these things, economists, they, you know, there are some intelligent economists, industrial leaders, people of that kind. I know quite a few of those agree with me. Many others don't. <laughs> but that's my view. And I will, I would, you know, bet on it against any other. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we see it in the, in the U.S. Treasury markets when there's such a big yield inversion that people that are buying those 30 year bonds uh, think that the economy is in serious trouble or you wouldn't have uh, a, a better rate on a 30 year than, uh, than you know, uh, three months or 30 days. Uh, given the way uh, uh, things have gone, that you, you can get a better yield to a certain degree uh, in, in the inverse way than it should be. And so the that's a sign that some financially sophisticated actors do not have confidence in what the Federal Reserve is trying to spend to people or what the uh, European Central Bank is trying to spend to people. And it's a model that I think has failed. And the only question is, do we get a 1929 level global financial disaster for to prove to the world what a disaster it is? Or do does the global South do us a favor and divorce from it uh, in order to salvage and save us from ourselves in terms of our elites? And I think you're absolutely right. Like you're talking about the the, the wars of today uh, are not wars of uh, that ordinary people profit from. That it's not it, it doesn't line their pockets; it empties their pockets. Uh, as uh, the uh, the ancestors of my Tennessee neighbors said in response to the Civil War. No, ain't none of us going to be fight dying for no rich man's war. That's how they saw the Civil War. Uh, they weren't interested in the Confederacy, even if the rest of the state of Tennessee was. They were mountain folks who came to America to get away from war, not to engage in more of it. Now, speaking of uh, desire for conflict, you know, seeing the stories circulate now out of Germany about admitting the Western source for the attack on Nord Stream 1 and 2 made me wonder whether Victoria Nuland's presentation 
is that you know that she i thought it was great headline you guys had on the episode uh you're you know you're right i ordered that code red from one of the great lines of jack nicholson i'm gonna tear the eyes out of your head best into your dead skull you know that was just one of the great apparently nicholson believed in it so much he kept doing it off camera he just like he loved that that whole line that was that set of lines but you could tell newland was so eager to tell the take credit Yes, we took out Nord Stream 1 and 2. They should build a statue to me in Kiev and in Washington. And I almost wonder whether part of that aligned group within the State Department wants the Germans to come out and say the Americans did it. But my view is it's another place where there's a disconnect because my assumption is that European public opinion would not take such a celebratory view of Newland's action like Newland thinks she would. Absolutely. Can I just say you're absolutely right about that? I mean, first of all, Germany's now going into the recession. I mean, this is now they've been trying to fiddle the figures. They've passed. They've been passing off. We've discussed this, uh, um, Alex and I. Uh, um, um, I, 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 I've spoken about this with other people. They're passing off some inflation as growth. <laughs> that's what that's what they were doing last year. So it's just, it's a it's a it's a common trick. And again, you know, Joe and his team every kind of trick in the book they're going to play i mean we have to and you know they're not going to if there's a chance of massaging the economic figures that way they'll they'll do it i mean that's the kind of thing they will do but nobody on the streets nobody who's in work nobody who's got a mortgage to play to pay nobody who has the taxes to pay taxes are going up all over europe uh, um nobody believes that nobody because it's too discordant with their actual everyday life experiences the fact is that Consumer spending collapsed in Germany in December. Um, GDP fell in the last uh, quarter. All the indications are of an economy that's going into deep recession. German business, very, very angry deep down and becoming more angry now about the fact that they've lost cheap energy from Russia. They're starting to really grasp, you know, they're saying to themselves, what did we do? I mean, they've, they've reached that level. They were swept along by the hysteria at the beginning, but now they're taking a step back and they're saying, what did we do? And Newland comes along and says, eh, no, no, well, you know, well, you know, you know, we don't know who did it. Wink, wink, shove, shove. That's exactly, by the way, I should say, Robert, I remember you telling us on one of our live streams some months ago, shortly after it happened, that these people would were aching <laughs> to admit to their role in I remember it vividly. Absolutely. I remember it so clearly. And then we have Newland. I mean, she comes along, you know, she's almost aching to come out and tell everybody, yes, yes, you know, we thought it was all us. It was all us. Well, I can tell you for an absolute fact that it's going to go down so badly in Germany if it ever comes out that, I mean, Newland and Co. just have just don't know what's coming. The Germans are going to be furious. Already, you see the German German opinion polls are saying, you know, they weren't happy about the tanks. They're dead against the fighter jets. They're starting to get worried that the whole thing is getting out of control. If they discover that, you know, oh, well, it was the Americans who directly or otherwise were involved in what was to be straightforward about it, a terrorist act against German economic infrastructure. That is going to go down so badly in Germany that you can't even start to talk about what the response is going to be. I would not personally be surprised 
if Schultz's government collapsed under the weight of the reaction. So, you know, just just just, just bear that. Out. I mean, you know, Newland doesn't understand Europe. Um, I don't know that she understands the US very well either, by the way. I mean, remember, she's not an elected politician. She's never been elected to anything. She's always been appointed to various places. And of course, she's really somebody who doesn't, I think, have that feel for public opinion. I've been seeing opinion polls in the US. You said correctly that there aren't really that many opinion polls in the United States, just as there aren't in Britain at all, by the way. But the latest ones that I've seen say that most Americans, more Americans now, think that the US is giving too much to Ukraine as opposed to too little. They'd rather see it start to wind down. And I can't help but think that this is going to start to, this this, this view is going to start to harden over the few next few months if there's economic problems in the US, if there's a recession in the US. And I agree, I think all the indications clearly point in that direction. I think that's going to happen in the US. But in Germany, if on top of the recession, in top of the on top of the tanks being sent to Ukraine, on top of Poland with its the crazy ideas of its government of expanding Poland into Western Ukraine, if on top of all of that they suddenly learned that you know it was the Americans or at least Vicky Newland's gang that blew up Nord Stream, well that's that's going to go down. I mean they'll be furious. I mean that's all I will say. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's it's extraordinary at a time we're trying to declare the Wagner Group a criminal group so we can arrest them Victor Bout style uh, while Bout is actually doing his uh, television uh, interview series after being released in exchange for a WNBA player uh, caught with some vaping uh, equipment and what have you uh, that you know that she wants to brag about one of the biggest terroristic events that is state directed uh, economically in recent times uh, the blowing up of Nord Stream 1 and 2 the but you know, the for people out there to give uh, to wrap up the sort of Victoria Newland component, uh, you know, guess who Christopher Steele's contact was at the State Department in promoting the Russiagate story? It was yeah. the one and only Victoria Newland. Really? So the, yes, no, yes. So she was neck deep yeah. Uh, yeah. in in the yeah. in the Russiagate yeah. complicity. Uh, she was one she, of the she always she always you know like like a sort of <laughs> something that smells very bad. She always turns up. <laughs> That's all I can say. Completely. Now, you know, credit to the uh, interesting. What did you guys think of the politician that's from the left that's now getting a lot of support from the right in Germany that Glenn Greenwald recently interviewed in part using opposition to war in Ukraine and the rest as a way to build a cross ideological base of support and contesting power there in Germany in particular? And by the way, on the funding side, uh, you're going to see the same thing pursued here in the U.S., that Senator Vance, his first one of his first things was he was calling for an immediate, full, transparent audit of the Ukrainian monies. And the reason he's doing that is twofold. One, the money going to Ukraine is not popular in the United States. And secondly, he knows that money is going to lead to a lot of black bag operations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is not going to have actually ended up in any Ukrainian war effort. And it would be very embarrassing for the deep state to have to expose where that deep state money really went. So look for Vance to continue to push on that angle. But is there promise now and finally some German public official 
challenging the institutional narrative on these insane Ukrainian policies. Absolutely. I think uh, the, the, and some, somebody just put up her name, but it's, it's Sarah Wagenecht. And I think she is indeed a, 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 a strong political force. And it's, by the way, very interesting because she's come from Die Linke, which is the party of the left, the German left, um, which, by the way, uh, um, emerged out of the former East German Communist Party, which then aligned with a political group that was that had split from the SPD, uh, led by a man called Oskar Lafontaine, who was quite an important German politician, who's still alive, by the way, and he still comes out. He's also, by the way, a critic of the war, but he's basically retired. He's very elderly. But anyway, she is a person who very, very interestingly is more of a populist in some respects than any other po politician in Germany in terms of the way you and you, Robert, use the phrase in that she's working class. She has a working class pitch. She's against immigration. She is uh, for strong welfare state, state intervention in the economy. Um, she is fiercely anti-woke. <laughs> she is, in other words, an old style classical 1960s German social democrat. I mean, I don't know what her background, ultimate background is, but once upon a time, say in 1965, she would have been seen complete, as completely mainstream in most of Europe. All, all these policies that I've just talked about, all these positions that she holds, including not wanting conflict with the Russians, wanting to pursue some kind of asked politic policies with the Russians, the signature foreign policy of the SPD government in the 1960s and 70s. Well, that's what she stands for. Of course, nowadays, you know, as far as the mainstream media is concerned, this is utter heresy. She must be called every bad thing that you can possibly throw at her. But it's popular. <laughs> I think I saw one opinion poll somewhere which said that 35% of Germans would you know would be could imagine themselves voting for a party a political movement that she leads now that's an incredible position if she were to achieve it from a standing start realistically perhaps she won't but the very fact that she's there that she's articulating these things is inevitably going to start to have um, a major effect on germany and by the way bear in mind germany's now in the early stages of a deindustrialization process, which is still reversible, but you know, once that thing gains momentum, it becomes almost impossible to reverse. That is going to have a traumatic effect on the German social and political psychology. And I can very well easily see working class opinion in Germany solidifying behind a program and potentially a party like this. So this is a this is an important thing. And, you know, she's left her old party, Die Linke, which has, by the way, gone all woke, just to say. <laughs> it's a fact which most people don't know, but, you know, the former East German Communist Party has basically gone largely woke. Very strange, very extraordinary <laughs> development. But anyway, she's breaking away from that. And, of course, she's taking a lot of the support of the IFD, 
the right party with her. And the interesting thing there is that the IFD, which, you know, had a certain potential in my opinion, but it never stabilized itself. It never developed a coherent leadership. It never, uh, I mean, there's some very clever people in the IFD, but a lot of very odd people as well. And it never really, it never really sorted itself out. So again, I can understand why when you have somebody, you know, clear cut, straightforward figure like this appearing on the scene politically, that she's starting to attract support from that quarter as well. So I'm not saying this is an unstoppable force. It's far too early. And Germany is this intensely conformist place. I mean, people have a lot of trust in the political system in Germany. They have good reason to be afraid of doing things that are <clears throat> going to rock the boat politically too much. I mean, the history weighs on Germany very heavily. <clears throat> I know, Robert, that you watch Babylon Berlin and, you know, the, the kind of politics that Germans remember <clears throat> from that time. So not easy to break through in some ways, but the political space for it is certainly there. I think, uh, you know, to wrap up, I know it's getting late over there in the continent. The uh, just uh, was going to answer uh, one uh, super chat about central bank digital currencies. You'll see it explored and experimented with by various countries around the globe. But their big plan of a global central bank digital currency that had a digital passport that had, uh, you know, social credit scores that could be attached to it and all of that. Mm -hmm. That dream, that control dream that Tony Blair was talking about at Davos, that Bill Gates has been talking about for some time, that basically went away when they were unsuccessful uh, in the war on Russia. Because now most yeah. of the world has no interest in a central bank yeah. digital currency that could wipe them out overnight like the U.S. tried to do to Russia and failed to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, the and I guess uh, uh, so that's good news on, on that front. Uh, it's going to be an issue, but it won't be the, at the mm. global scale they wanted it to be because they lost no. against Russia. And it looks no. like, you know, Victoria Newland and the neocons ultimate exit strategy is, you know, in terms of the dangers of waking up the bear, the Russian bear, is it's mm. the old joke. You don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than the other guy. And it looks like <laughs> the other guy they're going to feed the bear is Zelensky. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know. I mean, I've been speaking a bit. Alex, do you want to step? Well, in? no, no. Let's let's uh, let's wrap it up. That was two and a half hours yeah. of just awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that was fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. fantastic. Thank you very very mm. much, the great Robert Barnes. Once again, where can people mm. find you? Get all the content, including hush hushes of alternative views of history and current mm. events, at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. Thank you very, very much, Robert. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you to all our moderators. Thank you to everyone that was watching us on all of the platforms. And I will have all of Robert's information down below in the description box and pinned as a comment. And we will answer all of the questions in a dedicated Q&A as well. Thank you, everybody. Take care.